This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week is my absolute honor to welcome on the show nurse and author D.D. Finder. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the Peace Corps, emergency medicine, becoming a flight nurse, his experience in the ICU during the COVID pandemic, his own powerful mental health journey, catharsis through writing, his book, Ready Left, Ready Right, The Power of Sleep, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you D.D. Finder. Enjoy. Well, Didi, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show. You and I have gone back and forth for quite a while now, and uh, we waited deliberately for the book to be released. So here we are. But as an icebreaker, obviously, Didi is not your real name. Um, you know, you're not a uh, a topless waitress in some bar in Vegas. So <laughs> let's let's unpack why uh, why Didi. Yeah, James, again, thank you for having me on. First of all, I am a longtime listener, first time caller. I've been listening to you since about 2018, 2019. And this podcast has got me through some really tough and difficult times. 
as a flight nurse, which I'm sure we'll go into a little bit later. But the uh, reason why I went with DD Finder is uh, I'm still working in the profession as a nurse. And there's a lot of things that I wanted to write about that if I put my real name out there, I I, I didn't feel comfortable with. That's the great thing about fiction is that you can incorporate all these different themes into a book that perhaps would be tough to incorporate into a non-fictional, but in fiction, you, you can go balls out. So uh, hence the name DD Finder. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I, I heard you on uh, the 911 Nonsense podcast, um, you know, and there was a conversation like, well, we're not going to talk about names and companies. And that's the big um, kind of barrier to entry. Like, it doesn't matter what department you work for, the name of your hospital or whatever it is. It's it's the commonalities, the stories. And when you get to then circumnavigate, you know, HIPAA and all that kind of stuff by just fictionalizing some stuff that happened in real life but you add a little spin to it to take away the the accuracy all of a sudden the word is world is your oyster when it comes to storytelling yeah and you can do it in a in a way that is entertaining as well you know i think what the great thing about this podcast and a lot of those other podcasts that are out there that are for first responders and nurses that even even non-professional healthcare members can listen to is that we are advocating for our profession we are educating about our profession. But I think the one thing that is missing that you are also working on right now with your book is entertaining. Because if you look at our society and how we have influenced people into the American culture and the Americana, this idea of American is a lot of it's through our entertainment. You know, I think about like Michael Jordan in the 90s. The guy was awesome at basketball, you know, probably one of the best, if not the best basketball player. But I got on his bandwagon because of Space Jam. And then I became a huge Michael Jordan fan after that. How about Schwarzenegger? Yeah, Schwarzenegger with all his movies. And then all of a sudden, George Bush appoints him the chairman of the president's uh, Council of Physical Fitness and Sports. You know, so now he is what goes from entertainment into politics. So I think entertainment is this is venue that we nurses and first responders need to take advantage of so we can get our ideas and our voices and our themes out there. And some people are doing it. And you've had a lot of guests in your shows that are doing that now. Um, come to mind, I think of like, uh, like Jason Patton. Um, he's putting out coffee out there right now. He's got the Instagram account. Uh, was it Chronicle? Fire Department Fire Chronicles. Chronicle. Yeah. yeah. And now the guy's selling coffee. Yeah. I'm going to go buy his coffee because one, I, he's a firefighter and he's doing great stuff and he's hilarious on Instagram. So I think the more entertainment that we, we start putting out there, I think we're going to make it further as far as when a law or a bill comes around that's time to vote on. People are like, yeah, we're going to vote on that. We love first responders. It's amazing how poorly we're represented, not only in entertainment, but by our own professions. You know, and I, and I don't know so much about the nursing side, but from the fire paramedic side, I mean, you have a handful of shows and, and literally an even smaller handful of, of films that were worth a damn. Um, and you know, I know um, Steve Chikorotis, who is behind Chicago Fire, he kind of very politically correctly implied, well, there's the script that we present them and then it gets Hollywoodized. And I think one of the worst examples of how misrepresented we are is the the film Ambulance, who actually uh, um, Remy Adeleke, who was on the show as a SEAL, was was part of that production. But 
Clearly, there was no one on the staff that was a paramedic advising anything whatsoever. So, you know, you'll see a uniform on the screen, but it's so superficial that it's, you know, and then you add the fire service lack of branding and, and education to the public on what we actually do. People still in 2023 believe that firefighters sit around stations smoking uh, cigars and petting dogs, and it's it's insane. So I think we need the real men and women, the storytellers of our professions, to not just write a book, but push, you know, push, get it, get it everywhere. If you if you have the opportunity to make a TV show or a film or write songs or whatever it is, because this this mythology that's been allowed to exist is now getting to the point where it's literally claiming our, our lives. Totally, I think. One of the, actually, I got a pretty funny story too about that. Um, so I was an extra on a set of In Plain Sight. You ever heard of that TV show? It's no longer playing. Um, I'm not sure if I saw. I did my unplugged cable like 12 years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, it was one of those, it was one of those TV shows on like USA, you know, not a great, not a great show, but it still ran for like seven seasons. And so they were looking for EMTs and paramedics as extras. And I was an EMT at the time. So I, I got the job as being an extra on the set and I had to pull in the main character, uh, Mary McConaughey. I forget how to say her last name, but she's, she was like the main detective on the show. And the scene is she gets shot in the abdomen and I have to just wheel the stretcher with the camera right in front of me into the, the OR or ER. And so she's the, the props guys are trying to make her look all, you know, she's got like a bad bleeding abdomen and, um, they were looking for advice about how to move the stretcher. And like nobody on on the scene knew how to do it. So I was like the one EMT. I'm like, actually, guys, you need a, you know, this is how you put it in a semi-fowler. This is how you lift it up. And uh, Mary was like, does this look realistic at all? I was like, yeah, it's, you know, pretty good. And um, I remember the dialogue for that scene was they were able to detect that she had V-fib with no, no EKG pads on her, no 12 lead. That she was, she was in VFIT. Well, you can tell by pu- pupil size. Oh yes, yes, uh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is one bigger than the other? Yeah. Um, I I've always wanted to ask a firefighter this. The show rescued me with Dennis Leary. Legit, not legit. To Hollywood. I just had an interesting conversation. For me. The way, and I didn't watch every single episode religiously, but what I saw, it seemed like they started in a great place and then it started getting really wonky. And someone was telling me, I don't know if it was Bobby Burke or not, I'm trying to, I'm blanking on it now. Um, you know, was talking about, uh, well, that's that's showing the PTSD side, but I think they kind of lost, a lot of other people were like, yeah, it kind of went really weird and he's having sex in the middle of a structure fire and stuff. So yeah. I think it had an amazing opportunity to educate but then I'm sure it was the same pulling. Oh, we need to make it more interesting. We need to make it more kind of clickbait-esque. And I feel like it just kind of lost its way. There's two television shows in England. Um, the Bill, which showed police, and then London's Burning, that showed the fire. I felt that was a lot more gritty and realistic than pretty much anything I've seen um, in the States. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know the law enforcement side, but London Burning was very matter-of-fact, and it was kind of kind of almost gray in some areas because that's what we do we sit around i mean not sit around that's the wrong way of putting it there's a lot of 
calls that are very non-emergent and a lot of paperwork and fire inspections and then, and then you get an MCI, you know what I mean? And then you go back to the mundane. So I thought they did a pretty good job there. And that was, God, when I was young, so like 30 years ago. Nursing world is very much like that. I mean, look at, think about something in nursing entertainment. You have Nurse Jackie, raging alcoholic who stands up against doctors. And then you have porn. And I don't know about you, but in nursing school, they never taught me any of those things that are important. Like we, how to uh, give, give a good blowy? <laughs> never, never learned. <laughs> it was, you know, IV starts, pathophysiology. There was no, no anal. <laughs> we were and so it's repulsive to me when i think about my profession um as a first responder and as a nurse about how we are portrayed in the media and i think it's time you're doing it and i'm i'm trying to do it that a few of us stand up to this bullshit and say guys this is what the job is like but to do so in an entertaining way that perhaps not is just so in your fucking face about it but perhaps is more subtle mm-hmm. which is what i kind of hope that my novel does and i'd be curious to see when when yours comes out as well because i know you you know talked about in your podcast some of the themes that you're you're working into it like multi-generational uh trauma that passed out trauma that's passed down throughout the generations so i mean these are really important that we we discuss and i don't i had a friend that read my book he's like dude i had no idea i had no idea some of the stuff that you guys do on the helicopter or on the ambulance. It's like, yeah, that's that's what it's like. Well, I mean, I think the the problem is we take care of things while people sleep. We take care of things in the shadow while people are looking the other way. You know what I mean? So it's admirable what a lot of these professionals do, but there's a certain point where you kind of need to grab people and make them look. You know what I mean? Because it's like that Disney-fied bullshit where... Oh, you know, it's the happiest place on earth. Have you been to Disney? It is not a fucking happy place. You know, it's a bunch of parents that have saved for years. They have to line up in the sun for three hours while their kids are screaming. and But they still believe, oh, it's pixie dust and happiness. And it's not anti-Disney conversation. But at what point can you just not ignore the truth that's right in front of you anymore? So... I think Rescue Me at the beginning did a good job. I think, you know, Ladder 49 and Only the Brave were phenomenal on the fireside. But we just need more of that. We need we need to actually advocate for our people. And like you said, it can be entertaining in fiction, in, in drama, in whatever it is. But if we let other people talk about our professions, this is exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. We will no longer have that voice or it will be decided for us. I think that's really... A good metaphor of what it's like to maybe be a nurse or a firefighter sometimes i sorry i shouldn't speak for the firefighting um, firefighters out there but it's for you know flight nurses and nurses but it sometimes kind of feels like a disney character you know you put on the big old mickey mouse face walk into a patient's room got your hands all clean hey guys how are you doing today and then but deep downside you're you're probably you're just the room next door just had you know patient i wanted on ends of life care and you helped them pass and now you have to put on your happy face go to the next room and guess what you're getting an admin in 30 minutes i mean it's a death by a thousand cuts you multiply that by a few years and it's like no wonder the nursing profession just like first responders suicide risk rates are up divorce insomnia ptsd it's the same shit 
where there's truth, there's overlap. And I think that's the beauty about our professions is that we see the absolute best in humanity, but unfortunately the absolute worst. So that's one of the great things about talking to you is just what are these commonalities? Absolutely. Well, I want to start your early life and then we'll walk through and unpack some of those as we get into them. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Born outside of the Boston area. That makes me a mass hole. Um, <laughs> proud, proud to be. Um, had an older brother, or I have an older brother, I have an older sister. And, you know, the expression, it takes a village to raise a kid, totally true in my case. And thank God for the village that or a town I grew up in, because the house I was growing up in at, at, growing up in at the time was at times really rough. Uh, had parents that were going through a divorce, officially divorced when I was 18, but my dad moved out across town when I was around 11 or 12. So their marriage was in a shitter before then. So some of my first memories were my parents screaming at each other and doors being slammed. So um, I always remember being really anxious. Um, it's the 80s. So I think during the 80s, growing up, parroting was a little bit more hands-on, if you will. Getting, getting slapped in the face was perhaps a little bit more acceptable. Uh, and my mom, she, a lot of the parenting, I think, was on her. So with the issues that she had growing up, where she was raised by an alcoholic mother and had her own issues that she never had the time or never really went to therapy for, that style of parenting, I think, was brought on us. So my brother and sister, they, especially my sister, she received a lot of that, that trauma onto her. And she tried to protect me from that. So the relationship to my sister and my mom was um, difficult. And I think my sister saved me from a lot of that abuse, but I, it still, still came to me as well. Some of the forms of, uh, if you want to call it psychological abuse, which I think is interesting to talk about was I was locked in a basement for a lot of hours at a time. So if I acted up, I got locked in a basement. And down the basement, we have these posters, motivational posters. Still remember them quite clearly. One was like these cartoon characters from the 70s. And one said, always lend a helping hand. And it was this kid that was about to fall on a pair of skates and he was being caught by another kid. And there was another poster that said, don't put off tomorrow what you can do today. And I think a lot of my anxiety, even today, 40 plus years later, is having this fucking list of things that I need to get done in a day and not being able to relax. I think there's safety in, in service, being a firefighter or a nurse. And a lot of the trauma that we have from childhood, we put on the back burner. And it's actually not until after... I took off the uniform that I started to realize, hey, I'm still harboring some of this shit here. I'm still carrying some of this shit around. It's not until recently that I'm actually starting to seek therapy for it. Just say, hey, you know, I don't think I'm all right. And that's okay. But it's, it's time to do something about it. And when you first go into nursing or first responder world, you are just, you're on a mission. You're on a, you are on a fucking mission to be the best firefighter or best nurse that you can be. And then the calls start happening and you want to get another cert. Uh, 
all these things, you're, you are put on the back burner for so many years, in some cases, decades. And in my case, it's not until after I took off the uniform, I was like, I got to work on myself a little bit. So grew up in the Massachusetts area. And like I said, thank God that it takes, uh, thank God I have that village around me because I had some great friends that lives right nearby and I dove into sports. Sports was my, my safe haven from, from my house at times. So I was able to get out, ride my bike everywhere. Uh, as my teenage years happened though, I started what we call causing trouble. Started getting into a little more trouble with the law and had some pretty big fuck ups. Uh, one that I'm still embarrassed about, but it put me on the right path. If you're a parent and you're listening out there and your teenage boy just fucked up, just know that if you gave them good morals, that they'll probably turn around and they're going to be okay. And that was what happened in my case. Um, had a pretty big fuck up, got in uh, some serious trouble, but even to this day, I, it's like one of the low points in my life. And I want to say thank God for that because immediately I turned my shit around, started studying more, started really putting in the work in academics. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know. I don't know what would happen. But went to school uh, to go end up going to college and got my uh, first degree in environmental geoscience. And during the time in college, um, I had the opportunity to go study abroad in Ecuador. And that all of a sudden drove me to really push myself. Hey, what else can I do out there? What else is that? What else can I see? My, my world is not just Massachusetts, although it's a great, great state. And eventually I ended up being in Peace Corps. Firstly, with the sports, you said that that was one of your, your saving graces. What were you leaning into? Soccer was the big one. I played on multiple teams, indoor, outdoor, baseball, basketball to a certain extent, but soccer was the big one. I did some martial arts too, um, but soccer was, yeah, God, I love that sport growing up. We had a really good team, actually. We uh, won the state championship our senior year in high school or like top 50 in the, in the nation. And it was cool doing it with a bunch of guys that I've been playing soccer with since second and third grade. So kids that you have this 10 to 12 year relationship with just playing a sport, you know, become your brothers. And I look to them as a family. And to this day, some, a few of them, I'm still in great touch with. And I don't think that's, that's going to go anyway, going away anywhere. Well, it seems like you have some palpable shame and guilt about the mistakes that you made. Do you want to expand on that? You don't have to, if you don't want to, but is that something you want to, talk about i uh I was 16 years old i got really drunk once and basically threatened a kid um with uh with a knife and just totally out of character and i think it was at the time of my life where i just had a lot going home around at home and i was looking i don't know what i was looking for but it was maybe i was trying to impress my friends maybe i was just being a total dick maybe i was a dick at that time but it was something that, you know, I saw that the kid that I did that to, I saw him about a year later and, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but I can tell you that karma is a bitch. And I have some stories from that, but it, I went from a C to a D student right after the incident, went to an A to B student. And I just started focusing on academics. 
for the first, I want to say from like fourth to eighth grade, I was, I was out of it when it came to academics. I could not concentrate at all at school. And you look back on it now, it's, it's clear. There's shit going on at home that when I went to school, I just, I could not concentrate because I had, you know, sometimes I was afraid of being slapped or my sister, she was, uh, she is eight years older. My brother's seven years older and they moved out of the house and that took away some of my support group when they moved out when I was uh, around that age. So that messed with me as well. So that incident I just, again, turned me around because I was so ashamed of that. And my, you know, was, I have to give it to my parents too. They raised me better than that. Although they had things going on, they gave me a lot of good values and morals. And I was disappointing them, but I was really disappointing myself. When I was, get this right in my head. Oh my goodness, how old was I? Um... I mean, late teens, I think it was, I stole compulsively from my dad. Like, I would literally army crawl into their bedroom, get his debit card out of his pants, push my motorbike with the engine off as far as I could, turn it on, go to the ATM, get money out, come back, army crawl back. I mean, I should have been a freaking seal or something. I was pretty good at it. but And it just, I couldn't stop. And when I unpack it now, you know, I see... My parents got divorced. There was uh, a lot of uh, inequity when it came to love within the family, maybe other people existing outside our family that, you know, other families. And, and I think there was a subconscious realization, but that was a, that was me lashing out. But I had so much guilt and shame about that part of my life as well. And it took years. Like, I turned it around, but it, I would say... I'm 49 years out, years old now. It was probably only 10, 15 years ago that I saw that trust finally go back in my family. It was bizarre. So I just want to share share that with you, so that you know you were being vulnerable. But I think it's powerful. You know, you've been in that place. You know, you've had that these incidents, and uh, there's a lot of guilt and shame. But it's never too late. You know, whether it's 16 or or 60, it's never too late to say enough is enough. You know, I'm I'm at this turning point. One of the things that seems to be very common in a lot of stories where people were struggling when they were younger was a mentor, someone who, or you know, a, a group of who who were able to help that shift. Obviously, the individual's got to be willing to change, but there's other people that are facilitating it. Was there anyone around that time for you? Yeah, absolutely. There, all the sports I was playing some of those coaches became like second fathers for me and my, my older brother and older sister, they were just mentors for me as well. Cause they were in the same house. So see how they were trying to handle what was going on in my household. When I went to college, um, I met some great people and also when I was in Peace Corps. So at an older age from 20 and on, friends that were my age became mentors to me because they came from a different background, whether there is from a farm or out on the West coast. So I had a lot of mentors growing up, but also when I became an adult, I think that just started to have this compound interest of mentors and the mentors don't need to be the same. Like I said, they don't need to be older. They just be, it could be the same age. 
when you were in the high school age, before you found the Peace Corps, what were you dreaming of becoming career-wise? I had no idea. I, I, sometimes I was just living day to day, just trying to, well, I feel like, survive being a teenager and, and, and a broken home. I had no dreams and no aspirations. I, was, I worked one summer on a factory uh, line where I was putting a sticker in the same spot over and over again for eight hours at a time. This is water coolers. And as they come down the assembly line, you just put this one inspection sticker on there. I did that for a summer. I want to say I was around 17 years old. And that, on top of that incident, I already talked about that transformed me. Saying I need to get my shit together. I need to go to school. And back then, in the mid to late 90s, college was the answer. I don't think so as much now. There's just so much you can do without a college degree. But back then, at least being in the Northeast, going to college, getting a degree, and then you take it from there. So my goal quickly became, let's go to college. But I didn't know what I wanted to be. So walk me through how that took you to Ecuador and then the Peace Corps. Freshman year in, in college, I had a great Spanish teacher. It's crazy. I hated Spanish in high school. I mean, I fucking hated that topic. It was like one that you couldn't pay me to go and sit in a, in a classroom and take Spanish. Uh, but I had an awesome instructor all of a sudden made it relevant, made it fun. And then the sophomore year, again, different instructor or different professor. And then he made it relevant and fun. And they planted the idea like, you know, there's a whole other life out there that you can go explore. You can go live in Spain for a year if you wanted to. I have this friend, his name is Pooch. Pooch, uh, shout out to Pooch. Pooch was a year older than me. And he went to France and came back with some crazy stories. And when he came back and he's telling all my friends, all my friends, we, we lived in this, hung out in this basement we called the Dude Ranch. And so when he came back to the Dude Ranch and started telling these hilarious French stories, like that stuck with me. Sometimes life's about having good stories and going out. And now she's he's fluent in French. Like that's pretty badass. It's like 19, 20 year old kid who just, he wasn't fluent. He comes back fluent and he's got great stories. I need it. I need to explore this. So because of Pooch, that influenced me to see what was out there. And Ecuador was a possibility. I put out the application, got accepted. It was only supposed to go to one semester, ended up going to second semester. And then I got a job as a summer intern, uh, did an internship in the summertime down there. And I came back literally the day before I was supposed to go back to college for my senior year. I almost, I did not want to come back. I was having such an amazing time down there. Eye-opening experience, learning Spanish, living with, an, with a family, with an Ecuadorian family. It was actually showing me, this is what a family unit looks like. You spend time with your family. You go on vacations with your family. You eat with your family. You love your family. And I do love my family. But to see it in, in that setting was was a mentorship in a way of what a family should look like. With that lens, when you think of Ecuador, it, you don't think of it as quite a wealthy nation as the U.S., but I'm a huge you know, proponent of finding all the good that different countries do. Some of us have a lot of resources, a lot of wealth. Others, you know, maybe they're, they're more in tune with nature. What about Ecuadorian culture, apart from that one thing you've already highlighted, do, would you take back and tell the American people, wow, you know, we need to do this here? 
besides the importance of family, but that's where I learned that, to, that trying to help others is where I first got exposed to it. Besides from that, that fucking poster I had to stare at when I was a kid locked in a basement for hours. But Ecuador was the first place that I saw that people weren't trying to hoard their resources. If they had some resources, they would give it to other people. And they could be poor as shit. And they'd be giving their resources away. And there were some of the happiest people in that too. So that was something that that stuck with me. And then when I was in Peace Corps in Guatemala, that times 20 was what I saw down there, where you had some of the poorest people I've ever met, no running water, no electricity, would have to walk hours to get to anywhere and had smiles on their faces. And if they had something, they would give that away as well. They would share. Here, what happened during COVID? Toilet paper being stocked up for so you could wipe your ass for years at a time. You know, that's, I don't think that happened down there during that time. I bet they gave their toilet paper away if they had any toilet paper. I find it such a hypocrisy that America postulates as a Christian nation, and obviously it's not. We're a diverse mixture of all cultures and religions, but let's just pick on that for a moment because that's the one that's kind of thrust in our face the moment, that you can stand on a foundation of Christianity, but our healthcare is, well, if you haven't got insurance, then go fuck yourself. You know what I mean? That seems to be the furthest thing from community, compassion, kindness. And I came from a country, obviously, where it's not perfect, especially at the moment, as they dismantle it and underfund it and don't staff it properly. But when the actual philosophy behind the NHS is we're going to take care of everyone. And, you know, if you have that mentality, that drives you, not at the moment, but it should drive a country to go, man, let's make people as healthy as possible so we don't use as much tax money. You know what I mean? So it's a beautiful system. And I find it so nauseating when, you know, there's this talk of, you know, going to whatever religious place, but then our very, the most foundation, foundational principle of a tribal community is their, you know, their safety and their health. And we are absolutely fine with, you know, drug companies, insurance companies making hand over fist whilst many of our men and women have the audacity to get nailed by a car or get cancer and they lose their fucking house. You know what I mean? I just find it so disgusting. And then you look at other countries that take care of their other people, other tribes that take care of their other people. We need to find truly that Christ-like, what would Jesus do? Jesus would not have a high deductible HMO. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Two out of three bankruptcies in this country I read are due because of medical bills. 40% of Americans are trying to pay off some type of medical bill right now. Yeah, our system is totally broken. To say that this is working, and if you look at our outcomes, our outcomes suck. I'm in healthcare, and I I love my nurses. I love my doctors. But if you look at our healthcare, just look at statistics. Our healthcare system, as it ranks in comparison to other peer nations, is 11. 11 out of 11 peer nations. We're last. And we outspend everybody. We have, I think our, our GDP on healthcare is, is approaching four trillion fucking dollars. Four trillion. Four tri- that is insane. England, 900, 900 billion. 
is what they have, and their outcomes are way better than any other country. So to say that what we have is working, no. But you also said something too. I mean, our mentality in, in this country is we have two conflicting cultural norms here. United we stand and don't trend on me. And when we have a don't trend on me type of attitude, then we're not going to work together like we should with the United we stand. Because the reality is if we want to change something, we're going to have to get together on this. And sometimes it might involve paying more taxes, which nobody wants to do. But if that is a potential solution, are we going to want to do that? I don't know. A single pay, multi-pay system, kind of like what they have in Australia, could be one of the solutions to fixing our broke healthcare. But somebody smarter than me can come up with that solution. All I can say is from what I see, not just as a nurse, but as a patient, what we have is not great. To me, it parallels the fire service beautifully. You have this upfront, you know, oh, the, you know, this, is, this is the right way of doing it. So for example, in the fire service, the 2448, you know, system, um, but then you take a step back and you look at how many first responders die from everything, by the way, because if you look at sleep de deprivation, it's just whatever gets you first. It might be addiction and suicide. It might be cancer or autoimmune disease. But then you compare the American healthcare system or health, you know, what are they called? Disease management system. We have 70% of our population is obese or overweight. We consume 75% of the world's opiates. So if you are beating your chest and saying we have the greatest healthcare, we would be a bunch of svelte, mentally healthy men, women, and children running around with our, you know, smiles on our abs, but we're, but we're fucking not, you know what I mean? So this is what's crazy is that we're so hoodwinked by the clickbait, shiny objects that we don't have the capacity to step back and go, dude, no one, almost no one, never say never, but children in other schools don't have to do code red drills, for practicing yeah. someone coming in their classroom to murder them, you know what I mean? There aren't gangs on the streets of many, many countries in the world. There are in some, you know, El Salvador is probably not a good example, you know, but, you know, there's so many places in, in the world where if there is an element of that, it's minute compared to what we have. So this greatest country in the world, chess beating bullshit, is literally going to cause a demise of this country. But having humility to go, all right, there's some things we do really well. Healthcare, for example, is not one of them. What can we do? Because if you actually show the economy, the false economy of the fire services, just keep doing what we're doing. We bleed money on the back end as we break our responders. It's the same with this country. If you do a side-by-side -side comparison, like you said, of the UK and here, for example, and the UK now, sadly, is a less good example because they've disassembled a lot of the NHS and we're getting sicker there. But if you look at out-of-pocket, forget about tax, out-of-pocket per household, healthcare by healthcare, you realize that the British system, the NHS, is actually a lot cheaper. You're going to spend a lot less money for arguably better healthcare a lot of times because they're not being educated in medical school programs that are funded by drug companies in the UK. It's a completely different system. Drug companies don't have commercials on TV. You know, so, and again, take pieces of the UK, take pieces of Sweden and Finland or Japan or whatever else and make a, the best version of world healthcare and make it American. But if we just stick our head in the sand, 
and go, oh, we're the greatest country in the world, you know, whilst people fucking wheel around Walmart in in motorized wheelchairs because they're so fucking obese. And I hate to sound cruel, I'm not meaning that, but this is what we see. It's a norm that a wheelchair in an American hospital looks like one of those giant chairs that you take a picture of when you go to tourist spots. No, that's a real fucking wheelchair for Americans. You know, this is the thing. We have to open our eyes. This is what goes back to the storytelling. A nurse and a firefighter paramedic have a conversation and we're like, we see it. But the problem is the rest of the world still has that Disney bullshit version. And again, you want to see morbid obesity? Go to Disney. It is fucking heartbreaking. The men and women that are so, so sick consuming overpriced, you know, sugar and fat in that facility itself. Well, as flight nurse, we would, you know, we would have not just like a weight limit, but like a girth limit where there is people that are too big to get through the fixed wing door aircraft. That's a fixed wing door aircraft. They're, they're, we would have to cinch down their abdomen or up their abdomen to try to get them through there. It's crazy. You know, going back on El Salvador, have you ever heard of the Global Safety Index? It sounds familiar, but I certainly can't recall what it is. So please educate me. Yeah. So Global Safety Index, you can uh, you can Google searches, but basically says how stable your country is based off of crime, politics, and it and it spits out a number. You know where we rank? I'm going to hazard <laughs> a guess. It's not number one. It's nowhere near number one. I think there's about like 165 countries or so that are on this. Um, maybe a little bit more, but we're we're in the 130s. We're like 131. And then you mentioned El Salvador. El Salvador is 122. So I mean, it's Central America where I spent a lot of time in, and I've and I have some great stories from down there. <laughs> great, not so great. Um, is considered a a safer country to be in than our country. It's, it's totally frustrating, man. It is. Well, the, the the opposition to that, for example, the health thing is the whole, you know, fat shaming, hurt feelings. And the thing is, it's like I taught my son when he was a little bit younger about swearing. You know, swearing is really just a, an adjective, ultimately. You know, if someone cuts you up in the car, the first thing is, oh, my goodness, that gentleman just caused a near accident. No, you're like, <laughs> motherfucker. That's that is absolutely appropriate to that moment. <laughs> Fucking asshole. But it it's about the intention. You know what I mean? So I can use no swear words whatsoever and break someone's heart being an absolutely disgusting, you know, just using polite English. Oh, you're you're an obese slob, you know? And you can you can crush someone. It's the intention of the words. So if you're talking about obesity coming from a place of kindness and compassion because you yourself have put tubes down throats and pads on chests and watched someone die in your fucking arms, that is a place of love that you want that to stop, that you want these young men and women to have decades more life before they go naturally like we're supposed to. And so this is where this this conversation gets missed is, you know... <sighs> It's when obesity is discussed, it's almost ridiculed by people with abs or it's poo-pooed by people that are obese. And the answer is, you know, you don't have to look like fucking action man. But at the same time, there is absolutely a shortened lifespan from cigarettes and obesity and all these things. And a true leader is going to stand up and say enough is enough. We need to change. 
but every four years we get the same fucking asshole that seems to be completely unconcerned that's the wrong word but yeah this isn't concerned with not only that like the same amount of deaths on our road every year you know what i mean all the things that actually matter but as i've used this example but the world loses its fucking mind when there's a transgender model on a bud light can and that will take the airways for for weeks great smoke screen from like the real issues that are going on there that we can't have a, a sit down conversation about the things that really matter but we're going to care about yeah, like you said or tiger king like tiger king was great during covid but there is so much dialogue that we missed during covid and i worked in the icu during covid uh, as we were talking about uh before we got in the air like what was it like to work there was it was it really as bad as what the media said you know, who who were the patients that came in i was i worked in the icu during covid during the delta variant and what I saw from my perspective, I did not see somebody who you would think was in pretty good shape in my unit. It was someone who was grossly overweight or diabetic or had dialysis. Um, so I had some type of renal insufficiency. They didn't make it to my unit. People still got COVID, but they weren't in the ICU on life support. These were people that had some underlying medical disease. And we had a lot of good saves during COVID, during that during the Delta variant. Yes, there was some death there. Because I think you were asking me about that. Was it as bad as, as what the media portrayed it? What was not portrayed in the media, and we're really getting ahead of ourselves, but what was not portrayed was how bad it was on the nursing staff. It was fucking horrible. That three to one ratio, when you have three patients that are prone, if your patient is prone and on life support, I really should be a one-to-one. -one. There's so much care that goes into that one patient. You have three of those at sometimes. You're running around all shift. Good luck trying to get a bathroom break or a lunch break now. Running around with your 95 mask on for 12 and a half hours, just putting out one fire after the other. God forbid if you make a mistake too, which I did during that time. I made a pretty big meta. Um I I uh, hung the wrong bag of fentanyl on a patient. It was four times the amount than the normal concentration. I didn't catch it because I had alarms going off in two different rooms at the same time on prone patients. So I was, I didn't catch the error. Luckily, the patient was intubated and that the fentanyl in that situation wasn't going to stop him breathing because we were breathing for him. Um, it's going to make him really constipated though. So we had to counter that. But these are the type of mistakes that would happen during that time. And the stress that you have from making a medical error, the stress that you have trying to take care of three patients at once that are cr all critically sick. It, was, it burned me out, man. After six months, I just couldn't. I think I lasted eight months during that. That At that point in my career, I think I was about 14 years into it. Uh, sorry, about 12 years into it as a nurse. And I almost left the profession because it was of how much stress it was. And I had a pretty strong back going into it. And that was missed. We didn't talk about that really. It was kind of hinted like, oh, nurses having a tough time right now. No, nurses were fucking suffering during that. How much did the uh, heroes work here, posters help you guys with, with staffing and pay and sleep? You ever watch Animal House? You ever see that movie? Yes. Zero, zero point zero. Little Animal House reference.
zero, fucking zero. I don't call me resilience. Get me help. Don't say I'm a healthcare hero because I go home and probably are going to be crying after this shit. I need staffing. I need somebody. Don't bring in fucking Costco tacos. We had one administrator. Oh, one administrator was like, hey, I know it's rough right now. I'll bring in Costco tacos. Take off your high heels, put on some shoes and get out there and help us. We are suffering. You are a nurse. You're a nurse administrator now. And I know you're working your way up the clinical, uh, that corporate ladder. But come on out and help us. And it was like that way for for a good while. You know, a few months of that, you're like, all right, I understand it's going to take a while to do the hiring process. And then you realize, wait a minute, they're saving a ton of money here by not hiring nurses. This is great for them. A nice three to one ratio. What's the biggest budget uh, budget line on a, a budget? What's the biggest line on the budget in a hospital is your nursing staff. But if the nurses are just taking on more patients, hospital saving money. This is fantastic for them. It was really heartbreaking watching the NHS again, this medical system that I adore um, when fully funded and staffed because you had, in that case, especially, I mean, NHS is is the paramedics too. So, you know, pre-hospital, hospital workers and the UK came out at five o'clock and they would clap and then they go back in and watch, you know, EastEnders or whatever they were doing next. And, you know, to the person that just wants to try and help in some way, shape or form, you know, that's, I get it from the individual's point of view. They feel like they were doing something. But one of my guests a while ago now said, you know what that did? It just put the, you know, the, the um, responsibility squarely on the responders. You know, we clap for you. All right, go, go back to it. And what, as you said, what was needed was beds and staff and PPE and, you know, an emphasis on rest and recovery and mental health and all these things. And I think why I was so angry about the way it was handled, because everyone took it seriously for the first few weeks. Everyone. The biggest mm-hmm. naysayers in the world I've had on here were like, at the beginning, we were like, oh, shit, what is this? But once we realized, okay, this is actually this, not that, still bad for this group of people, large group of people, but you know, we could have had so many more people out there helping run the country and protect the people that were truly vulnerable. You know what I mean? But it was just everyone go hide in your house. I mean, I'm not a microbiologist, but a lot of the stuff that was told as a paramedic and an exercise physiology major, I'm like, I have a basic basic level of understanding of microorganisms. And this goes against everything I've ever been taught. So this is what's so frustrating is with everyone being taken out of the equation, it was just the people on the front line that were left to do everything. And then fast forward a year, now you want to take their fucking jobs because they didn't have the vaccine. So now two and a half years later, they're like, oh yeah, we just want to forget about that. No, no, you don't get to forget about that. This is when everyone in our profession needs to stand the fuck up for everyone that was out there and advocate them and make sure that shit never happens again. You know, we, we use expired meds during that time. There's such a shortage of everything. So epinephrine, uh, there's medics out there. I guarantee there's medics out there and nurses out there that were fired for using expired meds. And all of a sudden, COVID happens. You can use expired meds right now. What about the medics and nurses that were fired for using all that shit? Can we rehire them? It's just amazing how when things went really south and it came all on 
on us. The one, the level of support that we didn't get, but also things that we would have been fired for before was okay. And now it's starting to come back. The litigation against nurses just is it's insane. It's it's one of the reasons why I think nurses are leaving the profession is that the amount of responsibility that we have coupled with this I, unbelievable, insane cases that are going to court. Did you hear about this? There's these Filipino nurses in the 2000, I think, six, brought over to our country to help us out. And this is before COVID. We're basically had a domestic servitude. They were enslaved. They didn't have any rights. They signed some contracts they didn't totally understand and were work, forced to work mandatory overtime. They, they couldn't speak up about these horrible conditions that they're working in here in our country. They finally won a lawsuit against them. Another one more recent, just to highlight this, was uh, out of Wisconsin, uh, Fedicare Regional Medical Center. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but Fedicare, they had seven employees there. There were IR and cath lab, uh, and IR is where I work, so it's kind of dear to my heart. They found better jobs across the way at another hospital called Ascension. Medicare blocked these seven workers from leaving. They brought it to a judge and they were they said that you cannot leave this facility, even though you have a better job that's going to pay you more, or we are blocking you from leaving. And it eventually was reversed by another judge. But that sounds... That doesn't sound like a capitalist society where you, I found a better job and you're like, I'm going to put in my two week notice unless you guys want to match it and they'll match it. And you say, I'm out of here. And the, and then a judge says, no, you can't leave. Like only in healthcare. The, the Redonda Vaughn is particularly troubling for nurses case out of Tennessee. Redonda Vaughn was a nurse that tragically pushed Becaronium instead of Versed. So she constituted a paralytic, pushed it. And the patient coded an MRI. She, for the first few years, she was fired, but her license was not revoked. And it wasn't until a few years later when somebody called up the, I think it was like the Tennessee Medicare, reported her. And then the court, the case got um, brought to public. And then she was trialed and convicted of reckless homicide. She was going to spend three years in prison. Luckily, it was uh, reduced to a negligent homicide. And so she's not in prison, but she is serving probation. Um, did she make a huge medical error? Yes. Should her license be revoked? Yes. It was a mistake. She should be put in jail for it? No. And these are the type of things that are happening now to nurses. It's like, no wonder we're leaving the profession. I think the same could be said about firefighters in, in a different way. The amount of responsibility that's put on you guys with people with their cameras now, everything you guys do is under a microscope as well. Oh, especially law enforcement. I'd, I'd put them ahead of us just because, you know, I mean, for a lot of us, when we get on scene, people aren't trying to kill us usually. Sometimes they are. But um, when you have law enforcement pull over a car with tinted windows, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at the courage it takes to simply do a traffic stop. In Florida, the limousine tents are everywhere. Like you have no idea if there's a gun pointed at you 
and that you're never going to go home again just because you pulled someone over because of, you know, a legitimate speeding, you know, tag, whatever it was. And so you add in, you know, lack of training in some departments, overwork in others, you know, and now you've got this perfect storm for mistakes. You know, and I, and I, I want to ask you this, but, you know, with your fentanyl mistake, for example, at that time, were you getting ample rest and recovery or were you overworked and underslept? The latter, for sure. I, I was on Ambien for 10 years. I could not fall asleep the night before an ICU or a flight shift because I was so nervous about what potentially could happen. And that part of that's on me. I did not have a good way to downregulate my nervous system. I didn't know about any of that. I would just try to go to sleep, wake up, go to work. So I uh, went to a doctor and he was like, you know what? Considering what your profession is, let's try trazodone. Trazodone didn't work. Actually, I had a horrible side effect of uh, trazodone. Um, I'm hesitating to say that one. It's kind of personal. but uh, So I tried Ambien instead. And I was on Ambien for 10 years. And I, I had to take it before a night shift. But it, you might, I might as well have been drinking alcohol to knock myself out. If you're on Ambien, you're not really getting deep REM sleep. You're just knocking your shit out so you can think you're asleep and you wake up. So, no, I was never really rested. The stress, though, of when you start your shift at 630 in the morning and you have three prone patients and you have alarms going off in every one of your room, I can't – it's hard to describe – because you're already angst up about the start of your shift and you have 12 and a half hours of doing it. But then when you have critical alarms going off that you need to attend to in different rooms, you are running around and you don't have resources. So yeah, you're under, you're totally understaffed. I had nobody else to call. Everybody else is in a similar situation. There's a three to one ratio out there. There's no resource nurse. When I first worked in the ICU years ago, we would have resource nurses. Resource nurses, you come in for four hours, not even a, a, a complete shift. So you come in for four hours, you help out the floor, and then you leave. You had no patience yourself. A resource nurse was fantastic. You get a little bit of bump in your pay. You're helping out your nurses. Win-win. But there was no resource nurse during COVID. And they got rid of the techs. There's the expression that nurses saved doctors and doctors save lives. Well, the tech saved nurses and there's no techs on the floor because they got administration decided to get rid of them because that was, yeah, that helps the budget. Got rid of labs. So we were the ones that had to draw labs. So it's all on the nurse and no one else is going in that room. You know, so if something doesn't work in the room, we can't call like IT to go in and troubleshoot it. The nurse is going to go in and try to figure out why the phone's broken. Yeah. So yeah, I was for sure very stressed, definitely didn't have any help. Was I tired? Probably. I had a uh, father on David Hughes who lost his son, Drew. I think Drew was 14, if my memory serves me right. He was out skateboarding, um, hadn't worn his helmet that particular day, fell off his skateboard, um, and I think he was, I don't know if he was found down or not, but anyway, um, Fast forward, there's a sequence, just a kind of slew of really poor decisions. He's now in the hospital. He's, you know, AO times four, but he's kind of anxious. Um, but his parents aren't there yet. So you've got this 14-year-old kid. He's had this fall. He's around all these strangers. And so they order to have him um, 
uh, God, why am I blanking on the term? Uh, RSI. So intubated. Mm-hmm. So you've got this anxious child. They the medic gives him the paralytic, but doesn't give him for said, and then intubates his esophagus. And Drew was completely aware of the fact that he was suffocating and that poor little boy died and i think it was just another anniversary the other day if i've got that right i think six years now that that they lost their son this is the point like you said that that mistake when you pull in all these factors it is so irresponsible to ask someone who is who is responsible for lives to work these insane hours but that is what happens in so many of these professions especially mine you know these these firefighter uh, EMTs and paramedics at a minimum are working 56 hours a week that's three you know not sleeping every third day for 10 20 30 years then you add mandatory overtime now you're in 80 plus hours a week and you wonder why some of these mistakes happen now you also factor in lack of training and sometimes just hiring the wrong person in the first place but it's crazy that there's so much diligence in some professions where it's just about making money, but so little diligence in professions where people's lives are at stake. Your, your schedule as a firefighter, I as a nurse, it's insane. Uh, the amount of hours you guys pull on 24-hour shifts and then the whole Kelly schedule. You know, when I worked overnights, it's always weird because you're like, I... I uh I work an overnight. I get off at six thirty in the morning, and then I have the day off. No, 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 you just work six and a half hours. No other profession have you worked six and a half hours. You know, like I have the day off, and then you're gonna go home. Depending on what your what's going on in your life, you might catch a two three hours nap, wake up, feel totally hungover, and then try to do something with your family, or even just go to the post office and do some errand, and then try to get back on a day schedule or you go back to sleep. It's it's difficult. But as a nurse, you know, we do 312s, typically 312s. A lot of nurses pick up over time. And 312s sounds like a hell of a lot of less hours than 80 hours. And it is. And so it's it's hard to complain to firefighters about, hey, 312s are really hard. <laughs> 24 hour shifts, which I've done before as an EMT basic trying to sleep in, a, in an ambulance, that's pretty fucking hard too. But the amount of stress that you have during those 12 hours, there is no break. And if you work at a busy firehouse, there's probably going to be absolutely no break for you guys either. But on the floor, 12-hour shifts, it can wear on you. If you look at the average age of a nurse on the floor, they're not working. Well, I'm I'm in my mid-40s. When I went back to the ICU, I was one of the oldest ones there. There's a reason because those, those shifts are so hard. I think nurses are the world's worst athletes. I think firefighters, whether you guys get it right, is that a lot of fire stations, you have a gym, and there is some culture there of like, you need to be in shape to be a firefighter. And there's a lot of uh, uh, overweight firefighters as well. But at least there is an underlying culture of like, you guys need to be ready to go. In the nursing world, I don't think that really exists yet. And the nurses are the world's, like I said, world's worst athletes, because you don't even know that you're an athlete as a nurse. You have to turn a patient every two hours that is comatose and intubated. 98% of nurses have lower back injuries. 98% study I just read. 98%, man. We are, we are amateur strongman athletes. Well, we have to go in and turn a, a patient or help them up or twist or bends. 
And we don't get any credit for it. You're charting, and then all of a sudden you're getting up and you have to go perform some some almost max lift effort with no warm-up. At least UFC fighters come out all sweaty. At least batters get a batter's box. Nurses, they get to rub their hands with alcohol, go in and perform some like some deadlifts. And the equipment that you have, it's getting better, but it's not there yet. And also time's a factor too. So that's why back injuries are so prevalent around nurses. And uh, I wish we would, as a profession, focus more on our physical well-being. Of course, our emotional well-being, but also our physical well-being, because it is a physical job, being up on your feet for 12 hours and then having go lift a patient. It's a young man's game. Well, it extends to EMS as well. There seems to be the separation where, yeah, and if you're a firefighter, there's an acceptance in some of us that you need to be ready to do the job. And don't get me wrong, when it comes to the world of firefighting and the gear that we have to carry, it's another level completely. But you know, go back to the to sing, the single sir EMT and paramedic. All right, put them now in Vegas, middle of shooting. You're required to you know start um, pulling people out. You know what I mean? These people are are dead weight. You know, some of them been shot. You've got to pick them up and get them on the stretcher. You've got to get them out. Your heart rate's up. You know, take it another time. You you've got a patient. You know, in London, and the it's a shitty part of town, and the the lifts don't work, the elevators, and you've got to stair chair someone. You know, six floors. Yeah. This is what's saying insane. It's not like you're soldering some microchip in a factory. You need to. You are a tactical athlete as well. Maybe not to the same extreme as a firefighter, but the fact that so many of our EMTs are just, I mean, obese, obese, and that's perfectly acceptable. And and it's not because, like you said, not only the lifting. But the stress, the sleep deprivation, that is, you know, cancer, again, heart disease, mental health issues, it's everything just waiting to happen. So it, it, we can't, again, just say, oh, well, you know, a Navy SEAL needs to be fit, but an Air Force regular Army guy doesn't. Bullshit. We all need to be fit, which goes back to, again, that entire national culture. One of my friends who's a, a pilot was telling me a story. This, this wasn't, this is like secondhand story, but he said a friend of his was flying and his navigator behind him was, you know, very, very big. And they had a, an issue, an emergency. And the pilot said, we need to eject. And the guy behind him goes, we can't. I'm too heavy for the ejection seat. And so by some miracle, the pilot was able to land with this, you know, mechanical failure and save them both. But you think about that. Now you became a fucking liability that could have killed both of you. You know, so it's not, again, about fat shaming or anything. It's like there is no downside. You can be a healthier nurse. You can do these lifts, you know, without hurting your back. The average patient is smaller because Americans aren't so fat anymore because we've actually done it culturally. You know what I mean? And now these people can have long, healthy retirements as well. So that's what's so crazy is there is zero downside to focusing on improving health in this country and our professions. How do you go through nursing school? I mean, I was EMT as well. And EMT, ergonomics, they didn't really go over. I had a property lift. And I remember the old stair chair. I worked in the greater Boston area. I'd have to use that stair chair to like navigate around those little colonial stairs. And that sucks. But yeah, they'd really teach you that on the job. Like, hey, you want to engage in a transverse abdominus muscle. You want to use these muscles and not the, those muscles. I mean, 
I wish they would teach us that. I fire police. Police have so much responsibility, and they got to be good shooters. They got to be walking lawyers. They got to be basically an EMT out on the streets. Um, they got to know martial arts, and I think with nursing, and I think first responders too, is that we are not trained or we don't see ourselves like we just have to be good at medicine. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think we need to be good at other things too. We need to have some type of strength as a nurse or as a first responder to be able to lift up patients and equipment. Cause like you said, one thing when you're doing it, your job, but when you retire from the job, you want to be able to lift up your kids or your grandkids and not because you suffered horrible back injuries as a nurse and workplace violence too is also huge too. Yeah, you know, it's not just you're suffering on a job because you know you lifted a patient, but you could get injured on a job because of workplace violence. Workplace violence right now is kind of a hot topic in nursing. There, there's a study I read recently about like eight to thirty-eight percent of all healthcare workers, or up to thirty-eight percent of all healthcare workers, are like experience workplace violence, and it's it's larger than that. That's reported. Um, but there's a nurse right now in Rhode Island that's critically in the ICU because he was critically injured at work um, from a site patient. What if during nursing school, besides the escalation techniques, but they can actually teach you a little bit of jujitsu, about EMTs, if they learned a little bit of that as well. There's things that we're not doing out there that can help protect our nurses and first responders. Maybe a cool idea. You don't need to be a black belt. Just even one or two stripe white belt, I think, would help you tremendously out in the streets or even in even in the hospital. I will credit the uh, College of Central Florida here in Ocala. When I went to medic school, I didn't do EMT with them. We did a, I think it was two day DTAC class, and we literally have combative patients. You know what I mean? It was on the stretcher, off the stretcher, um, and there was some great techniques. You know, just I mean, nothing. You know, when you're shown something for two days, you're not going to be a master of it. But there were times right. I used some of the pressure points, you know, when we had some of the because, as you know, like hypoglycemia, postictal, um, you know, there's there's certain things where, you know, once you get them stabilized, they're going to be calm again. But in that point, they're fighting you. And so just having some of those um, restraint techniques versus getting into a boxing match with a patient, which never looks good on their face. Um, you know, it was, it was invaluable. You know, it was it comprehensive? No, but was it at least an attempt to try and give us a few tools for that incident? Absolutely. And I've had combative patients. Actually, I'm writing about one in my EMT clinical in, in my book now that, you know, people will, will see that unfold. But, you know, there's times where I've been with a bunch of people and we're fighting kind of partly for our lives with this combative patient you know and you got posies half tied and you're like fuck trying to see you know trying to draw up the meds the cocktail and, and knock them out and yeah it's it's sketchy which again is where the fitness comes in you know i mean look at that poor um i think she was i don't know if she's emt or an actual paramedic but that was stabbed in new york a few months ago mm. you know it can go from zero to a hundred and even you know one thing that i was always aware of is teaching medics and emts to think about patting down the patient in a way that it looks like a you know head to toe survey, but you're also looking for knives, guns, whatever, because you know the EMT jumps in the front. Now it's you and crazy Steve in the back, and now you're fighting for your life. You know, so yeah. they're just having that situational awareness built into a program and then reinforced by your agency 
I agree 100%. It should be. Even the, you know, the, the basic things like don't stand in front of a door when you knock on a medical call. I was taught that very, very early, you know? So you don't think about that when you're a bright-eyed student. But yeah, someone could be you know, a 95-year-old Vietnam vet with dementia who thinks you're coming to get him and he shoots through the door, you know? I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. He, he's confused, but now you're lying on the porch bleeding, wondering what the fuck just happened. First time I, uh, I was a victim of workplace violence, I got punched. I, mean, I guess... I guess you can call me a victim. I kind of find it more humorous, this story. I was punched in the balls by a World War II vet. They were trying to get up. It's like, am I going to press charges against this guy now? And he was off in La La Land. But shame on me for not, I mean, he, that dude nailed me. That was really impressive. You just got to be squaring the nuts. And it, that, that put me out for, I was, I was on the ground. That hurt. Um, the second time that, and this was more legit, was I had a, a patient in the ICU that was, uh, he was in jail for something. And uh, there was an office, even with an officer in the room, I was around, I was walking around the bed trying to silence some alarms. And he just, he got right up and then started swinging at me. And I had to close the gap and take him down on the bed. But that's where some martial art training came in, where I'm not going to stand in the red zone, I'm either going to back away, but my instinct was actually just get close to him, real close, like my my head's buried in the side this dude's chest, and now I'm taking him to the bed while the officer also jumps on him. We're we're uh, calling for help. You know, we can put some uh, restraints on this guy and give him some medications, give him a B fifty two, you know, some Haldol and Benadryl and Ativan, and uh, put him in La La Land, but. Thank God for a little bit of martial arts training in that. And, you know, if you're a nurse and you're going into a room and you have some de-escalation techniques, that's great. But sometimes trying to talk down a family member or talk down a patient, it's not going to work. You got to know what's your plan B, what's your plan C. And if you get trapped in a room, I hope you're near the code button. That's a good one. And if you're a nurse and you're, you're into a violent, potentially violent situation, do not put yourself between the patient and the door. You want to be near the door. And if you are, be right near that code button. That is a great way to get people in that room really quickly. Well, I want to go back to your journey. So you were in Ecuador. You know, you got back just before your final semester. What took you into the Peace Corps? And then talk to me about your exposure to medicine. Awesome. I, I got to great first story about my my first experience in medicine but as a patient um but when i was in i was in ecuador uh, i went out to this this beach once with the program director he, he brought us down there to his like little beach house and we were all sitting around having a beer on this beautiful isolated beach that I, if you gave me a map I, don't, I didn't know where we were and I thought we were all kind of being, you know, this is pretty badass. We're in the middle of nowhere having a beer, their program director, bunch of gringos. This is pretty cool. And as the night is coming upon us, this white dude starts walking down the beach out of nowhere. Like, wait, what, what is this guy doing here? And he, and he breaks out perfect Spanish. So some of us for a second were, were thinking as we're hanging out this, uh, it's actually this little bar right next to the pro, uh, program director's house. So he starts breaking out this great Spanish. And, and then we realize like, 
hey, aren't you aren't you from the states? You know, you kind of look like a white dude. And and he uh, so we asked him like, are you from the United States? Like, yeah, actually, I'm from Chicago. So what are you doing here? It's like, oh, I'm visiting my girlfriend in the Peace Corps. And that idea of this just guy walking down the beach in the middle of the night on a backpack in the middle of nowhere, just like it stuck with me, like that idea. So I went back to the States, senior year, graduated from college. First year out of college, I wasn't doing much. And I was that idea of being in the Peace Corps just stuck with me. And maybe it was those posters being locked in the basement, always help, always lend a helping hand. Uh, so I applied for Peace Corps. That's about a year-long process. And I wanted to originally go back to Ecuador, but in Peace Corps, you don't select what country you go to. You can select what region. So in this situation, I, I wanted to go to Latin America, but you can't choose between Central or South. It's just Latin America. Um, I think the first time around, they gave me uh, Bolivia, which I, I didn't want to go to landlocked country. And I was like, I really want to go back to Ecuador. Can you? What's your second option? And they said Guatemala. Guatemala it is. A year later, 2001, when Peace Corps in Guatemala. Peace Corps in Guatemala, you take chicken bus rides down there. I don't know if you've ever seen what a chicken bus is, but it's basically this U.S. school bus, you know, what the kids ride around on. And when they go into retirement, mm-hmm. those school buses, they, they don't go to like a, like a, a, a yard, junkyard. They get sent down to Latin America and they become public transport buses down there. And they're decked out and they read, they, you'll never see, you'll see a school bus down there. They'll have like Jesus with the crown of thrones <laughs> and next to it, there'll be like Jessica rabbit. And so he's <laughs> like the decorations on these buses is just so insane. And they call them chicken buses because where you store the luggage, sometimes there's chickens like right above your head. So you have people that are crammed in these, these chicken buses and I always had, I was reading Stephen King a lot at that time. And I was thinking, you know, if this chicken bus goes off a cliff into some weird Stephen King vortex, and then all of a sudden we're like the last ones on earth, what do I bring to this table? Like, I don't know shit about shit. And all the people that surround me that are on the same bus, they're all farmers. They know how to work the land. They have something that they can give to the world. I have nothing. I can look stuff up on the internet and that's it right now. So that idea started to percolate a little bit more that I want to be able, I want to have some, something to give to people. One of my favorite books too is uh, Cider House Rules and Homer in Cider House Rules. He, he wanted to be, his quote was, I want to be useful. So the Stephen King vortex and Cider House Rules, I want to be useful. was just kind of going around my head. Then, uh, I woke up one day in Peace Corps and I had this horrible abdominal pain. And basically it felt like I just had to take bad shit or fart and it was just going to be alleviated and and didn't go away. And it turns out as the day went on, um, the abdominal pain was just getting worse and worse. So I called the, uh, the Peace Corps nurse, Kathy. It's like, Kathy, I'm feeling pretty bad right now. It's like five or six o'clock at nighttime. I have this horrible abdominal pain. And so she tells me, uh, I need you to come in. I need you to come into the hospital right now. I think this is pretty serious. I was like, Kathy, the buses are not running. I'll see you tomorrow. She's like, no, you're coming in right now. You call the firefighters. You, you get your ass into the hospital. 
So I had a site mate, Peace Corps, you have other volunteers that sometimes are nearby. And I called my site mate. I was like, hey, Robin, I need to go to the hospital. So she calls the local firefighters and they come by in this Chevy truck with this blood soaked stretcher. And they want me to get into it. And I was like, no, I'm not getting on your World War II, like hot. <laughs> I was like, I'll sit in the front. So I actually sat in the front of the uh, of their ambulance and we drove to the hospital in an hour and a half. And when I got there, Kathy was there. Um, and Kathy's like, hey, you really need, you really need a surgery. And just that comfort of of Kathy being there just meant a lot to me. And I think that kind of stuck with me as well, where I started thinking, all right, healthcare, I can do this. I, I should look into this a little bit more. Um, so yeah, that story, I, I think I, I think you heard when I uh when the doctor came in the room, he did my he did a prostate exam on me. And then walked out. And so I'm 20, 22, 23 years old. And I just had my first prostate exam. So this guy walks in. He's like, I need to check your prostate. He checks my prostate, walks out. Surgeon walks in the room, does a rebound test on me. I scream in pain. He's like, you need a hernia surgery. I was like, well, what the fuck was that finger in the butt a few minutes ago, doctor? That was a, <laughs> like, billing. This... That was a billing department. They were getting you ready. <laughs> <laughs> like they know you're which American. I really, <laughs> which I really think is appropriate for your first introduction to healthcare is, is a finger in the butt. So then they wheeled me back into surgery. And the first, the last song I heard as I'm getting put out is Eric Clapton, Tears of Heaven. I think they were trying to be nice and like, let's have some music that has English lyrics and it's, would you know my name? <laughs> the heartbroken father that lost his child out of a window. That sounds perfect. As you're, <laughs> as you're being drugged, dude. Like, uh Absolutely horrible song to hear as you're going out, but that was my that was my first real introduction into medicine. It was a finger in the butt with Eric Clapton and a helping hands. I don't know. Unsolicited anal sounds like a pretty good prep to life in the medical profession to me. <laughs> I, I I would think that it would be day one EMS. <laughs> So you are down in Guatemala, you know, doing the Peace Corps. How does that take you into the world of EMS specifically then? Yeah, so then after after Peace Corps, well, in Peace Corps, I started working um, closely with this nonprofit organization where we pr provide surgical services to Guatemalans that could not afford it. So cleft lip, cleft palate, cataracts, whole slew of other surgeries. This prof this nonprofit would provide the bridge that would bring patients into the hospital where all these other nonprofits would go to from Canada, US, Spain, Cuba, provide these surgical services almost free. And then the nonprofit would bring them back out to their village. After Peace Corps, I got hired on as a director for that. And then I continued to live in Latin America for about four more years. I started climbing. I started, I started getting, I would guess, having more power in a sense. I was making these big decisions down there and I had no medical background. To a point where I remember I was in Honduras because the job eventually led me to Honduras. And I saw this little kid walk out in front of me. Um, he had this big bloated stomach and he was like half naked. And the mother is running after him. And I just remember having this epiphany that if the mother picked up the kid and looked at me and said, my baby needs help, I wouldn't know what to do. Even though I am the director of this nonprofit organization and I know all these important people, I'm making these big decisions. I don't know shit about medicine. 
And that just stopped him in my tracks. It's like, I need to go back and study medicine. So I very shortly after came back to the United States and started, um, I wanted to pursue either nursing or PA, but I needed a, I needed a gut check. I needed to make sure that I was going to be able to handle it. And for me, the best way to get into medicine with the least amount of effort and least amount of time and resources become EMT basic. The EMT basic course is a few months. It's expensive, but it's not as expensive as med school or nursing school or PA school. And very quickly, you're going to find out if you can be cut out for this profession or not, at least the emergency side of it. If you want to go into oncology or outpatient stuff, then I don't know if you really need to become a BMT, but in EMT, you'll quickly realize, yeah, this is going to be a profession for you or not. So I became EMT in the greater Boston area. And about six to eight months into it, I realized, yeah, I can handle this. So then I started pursuing nursing after that. So you're born and raised in America. You go to Latin America. You have these experiences in Ecuador and Guatemala. Were there any aha moments when you got to see behind the curtain in your own country of some of the things that we see in pre-hospital care? And the resources down there in Latin America are, you know, the ERs down there are basically like, like a, like a mash hut, like you huge open room, people on cots and like, wow, this is, this is incredible. I don't know how people survive this type of healthcare system. I remember one of the hospitals where family members would have to actually go out to the pharmacy across the street to buy the normal bag of saline and bring it back into the hospital. Wow. That's, that's pretty nuts. As far as like aha moments though, you, the reverse culture shock of coming back to this country, I think was, was more upsetting than seeing that down there. I always, thought that you should be very quick to observe and slow to judge in anything you do. You go to a new fire department, you go to a new hospital, you're very quick to observe. Mouth is kind of closed for a little while. Quick to observe, slow to judge. But when you come back to this country and you get reverse culture shock, it, you, you're not expecting the things that, that you thought were safe and no longer are. So were there any examples of that? Because, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. I grew up on a farm in England. You know, we had sheep and I took care of all the ducks and the chickens and the geese. And, uh, you know, then I come over here and I, and I lifeguard for a while. But again, most of us that lifeguard in places other than the beach, we don't really see that much because if you're a good lifeguard in a pool or, you know, a, um, a water park, you do your job, people are normally okay because you're very proactive. Now you work in this job where you are in a central location and people call you when shit has already hit the fan. It's a very different dynamic. And you go from rural England to inner city, Hialeah or Orange County or Anaheim, very fucking different world. So it was jarring to me. It, I mean, again, like you said, I was like, oh, I seem to be able to do this, but two, two completely different worlds from the one I grew up into the one I found myself in. Yeah, Latin America, you know, I would be going out to very far away villages. Like I said, they have no wa running water or electricity. And I, I remember one girl, her name is uh, Maria. Maria had this cleft lip and she was like 15 years old. And she did not go to school because she was so embarrassed with her cleft lip. And so we were able to provide 
the family uh, surgery and all of a sudden she's she's starting to have the courage to go back to school again at 15 16 years old where before she was just hidden in her little hut so you have that experience and then about a year later i'm working on the back of an ambulance in Revia in chelsea in massachusetts going into people's homes and dealing with you know what you deal with in ems and it was a huge culture shock where now you're running on drunks. Now you're working on heart attacks. Now you're working on people who, yeah, they're not always happy to see you. In fact, I would, I would say the majority of times working, at least the calls I ran, they weren't necessarily happy to see us. It was more of this sense of entitlement. All those bullshit calls you ran as an EMT, where they're literally walking out to your truck and are able to walk up into the ambulance and want to go to the hospital because they have a headache for the 17th time in a week. That's you're like, man, if you if you had just seen what I seen like a year ago. But one thing I learned, nobody fucking cares. They didn't have that experience that I had down there. When I came back, I was on a high horse for a while. Do you know down in Guatemala they don't have 30 different milks in the grocery store? Do you know they don't have sidewalks? You know, people are like, dude, we didn't have your experience, man. Like, get off your high horse. That's a great thing about being from Massachusetts. I mean, people very quickly tell you what they're what they feel and what they're thinking. I don't sugarcoat things. Um, so in a sense, I I, I didn't want to, you know, I just had to accept what it was, where it was, and keep those those memories back in my mind and just kind of smile to myself sometimes. I forget the quote, so I'd butcher it if I tried to to think about it, but there's something, there's a quote that I love by a person who was famous as how <laughs> terrible my memory is, but it talks about, you know, if you want to eradicate ignorance, travel, something like that, you know, because when yeah. you go around the world, it completely recalibrates your your entire barometer. You know what I mean? And so if you've only ever worked for one fire department, you've only lived in one or two towns, that's your entire reality. That's all you know. But when you've done different careers and you've worked in different places, especially different countries, and you've traveled not only are you like, wow, you know, some of the things that we do here don't seem to make any sense, but then positively, but I know systems that have the solution to that. And that is what's so frustrating. You know, when people are like, well, that's the way we've always done it. You know, I don't have any answers. It's like, well, people fucking do. But you need the humility to actually look around you and go, hey, you know, and I use these examples all the time. Finland. Tell me about your your school system, you know, Norway, prisons, Portugal, drug policy, UK, healthcare, and on and on and on. And then vice versa, America, teach us about X, Y, and Z. You know, that rising tide raises all ships or lifts all ships. But if we stay stuck in our little myopic world, which is getting even fucking smaller with cell phones and, you know, dumb phones, um, we're forgetting that there's people that have already done it and we waste so much energy and money reinventing the wheel, even in the fire service. Oh, we're going to start a mental health program. There's, they're already out there and there's some amazing ones. Just ask someone who's already done it and then that way you can use other resources, do other things. So that's what's so maddening and I get it. When you've seen other places, it gives you a different lens and then you come back and you're faced with for lack of a better word, ignorance and empathy. Oh, no, apathy, not empathy. Apathy. It does. It, it makes you fucking angry is what it does. But it gives you a sense like I can talk to anybody. 
if there's one thing I learned down there, it's you learn the skill of being a bullshit with anybody. And that is huge in EMS. And that's huge in nursing to be able to go in a room, especially with my current job. My current job, the ABCs for the most part are pretty much covered. The ABCDEs, whatever, you know, it's you know, working at intervention radiologist, uh, radiology department. So we're not picking up people from the side of the road. People are coming in mostly as outpatient. And they're just anxious about stuff. And so the ability to connect to people because of that diverse background, I have way more empathy now. Because now I know, I think about what they're potentially going through, what it's like for them to walk through those doors. And maybe that's because I'm older as well. And I have you know, aging parents and I have a wife. And you know, there's situations where I, I, can, I can imagine what it's like to be in their situation. But also just having a worldly view, where you're able to just zoom yourself out, look from above and say, okay, I might be having a crappy day right now because I had to get up and go to work, but what's this person going through right now? How can I make them more comfortable? Uh, I think that's what Latin America has helped me the most with, is being able to have empathy for people. So you work in as an EMT. Walk me through your journey into nursing and ultimately flight nursing. Did the EMT gig for almost a year, and I moved from Massachusetts down to New Mexico. I had a friend in Peace Corps. It's like you got to check out Albuquerque. It's a beautiful spot. So one of my journeys, I uh, I actually traveled from Guatemala all the way up to Albuquerque. It took about two months, taking different buses, traveling through Mexico. It's like one of the best times of my life. Uh, I did it um, a month with a friend and then one month without a friend. Crazy stories, great times. And so I did visit Albuquerque uh, before I I went back to Massachusetts to become EMT basic. So when I was an EMT in Boston area, it's like I'm getting my foot in the door. I'm hanging out with my my friends for a little bit, getting readjusted to American culture and, and almost relearning English for a while. My English, my English isn't great to begin with. But my English when I came back was was horrible. I was taking conjugated, I would conjugate verbs in Spanish into English. Like I would put an ing ending on a verb in Spanish. So I had to work that out. Uh, that's that took a while, but um, I eventually decided that Albuquerque. I wanted to try Albuquerque. I wanted to get out of Massachusetts again after being there for a little while. I was like, yeah, it's, I, I needed to see what else is out there. So I. Went down to Albuquerque, New Mexico, went to nursing school there and started my my medical career as a nurse um, at University of New Mexico Hospital, became an ICU nurse down there. To become a flight nurse, flight nurse, if you today decide you want to be a flight nurse, that's nine years until you can step on a helicopter, basically. You know, four years, get your nursing degree. Maybe you can do a little bit faster, but depending on your prereqs. And then if you get a job right out of the gate working in the ER or ICU, you need at least five years of experience. So that's crazy to think that today I want to be a flight nurse and you have no background. It's going to take at least nine years. But Albuquerque um, was part of that journey where after nursing school, I went to the step down unit for about a year and then went to the ICU for about five years. So I qualified to become a flight nurse. And then I did flight nursing down there for a while. And eventually moved up to Colorado, uh, where I continued to be a flight nurse for a few more years. So contrast um, 
the world of nursing from a ward to a helicopter? I mean, what again was some kind of career stories and aha moments for you? A lot of good. Um, I had some pretty good saves in the helicopter. One of my favorite helicopter saves uh, was there is, you know, you can do you can do drugs and you can hang out with strangers and you can go and take hikes near cliffs. But when you combine all three together, that's never a good call. When you decide to do cocaine with complete strangers and walk near a cliff, never a good idea. And with the sun setting, never a good idea. So that was a call that I went on. And uh, Albuquerque Fire Department is trying to find this patient out on the west end of Albuquerque. If you move, if you get out of the city, Albuquerque is beautiful, by the way. It's such an underrated city. Yeah, there's a lot of crime there. But right now, especially during the fall time, during Balloon Fiesta, Green Chili, amazing city. San Diego's are gorgeous. Every sunset there is just unbelievable. But on the west side, there's these like canyons that people go four, four wheeling. Um, and they're... The, uh, or Mesa, I should say. It's like a Mesa down there. And it's it's pretty vast and you're going to get lost if you don't know where you are pretty quick. And trying to find somebody there is like a needle in a haystack. So the call came out uh, of Kirk Fire Department is trying to find, locate this patient. And all we know is that the patient uh, potentially has some drugs on board and it's off a cliff. And he's with the friends and they're calling 911. So we got sent out there. They can't locate the patient yet. But the patient's still on on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. The 911 dispatcher was able to um, log the call in or, or splice the call into my pilot's headset. So now my pilot is talking to the friends and he's asking them, all right, do you see us? Yes. Do we need to go right or left? And a bit, there's a little bit of a delay. So the, the friend on the ground would say, okay, I see you guys, you need to take a right. And then we would take a right. And he's like, no, no, I mean, gotta be take a left. So we're doing this for about like a half an hour, trying to vector in where this patient was. And it's getting dark, but this worked to our advantage because now we asked him, do you have a light on your cell phone? And he said, yeah. So he's starting to flash his light. And I caught it, at the quarter of my eye, I caught this little light. And I told my pilot, like, Two o'clock low. I think I got him. So we start circling. We get closer. And sure as shit, there he was. Fire department's nowhere near. Because where they were saying, where they were, where they were telling 911 dispatch, it was nowhere near where these, this patient was. So we uh, we landed, found this little, little plateau to land the helicopter on. It's just us. It's the pilot, myself, and my partner, and this friends and the patient. There is no other help. And this guy stumbled down a little cliff that was probably about 20 feet. It wasn't a straight cliff. It was one of those cliffs at an angle. So you just kind of all the way down and then was pinned up against the boulder. Luckily, like his head wasn't cracked. I don't know how he didn't fuck his, his head or, or, or anything really major up. But he had a pretty bad leg fracture and hip fracture. Um, that, was, that was the leg fracture that was obvious. And I go up to him. He's still conscious. Like, holy shit, this guy's actually doing pretty good. But he's huge. He's like 250. And it's just three of us, you know. So we started asking, like, any drugs on board? He's like, yeah, I did some cocaine right before I uh, took a stumble down the cliff. I was like, man, cocaine. Uh, and the friend was high, too. So 
we uh, I asked the pilot, hey, do you mind shutting down? A running helicopter is a working helicopter. Shutting a helicopter down in the middle of nowhere, there's a little risk factor to that because you just don't know if that helicopter is going to start back up. So I asked my pilot, like, Randy, you feel good shutting down? I was like, yeah, I feel good. Bird's running good. Let's shut down. So we needed all the lifting help we can get. We go out, stabilize leg fracture as best as we could, put him on a C-collar. And then we we uh, get him out from this boulder. And we have to elicit the help of this friend who's uh, high on cocaine to help us out. So four of us put him on our little stretcher. And we're covering dirt at this point. Um, call was so much fun in that regards. It just working EMS out in the middle of nowhere. Just, your flights is getting covered in dirt. Was, that was fun getting back into the helicopter and now the friends like you can't leave me out alone it's getting dark it's getting cold down there but dude's high in cocaine man like i don't know if i want to put him in the helicopter um pilot myself and i we made a collective decision we could put this guy in the front seat uh it was in augusta so there was a, a, a co-pilot and then the medic and i were in the back and so we put him in the front seat and um i feel like that was a save too because i don't know if that guy would have gotten out we flew him into the hospital. I threatened that dude right before we get in. I was like, if you touch any fucking thing, right? We're good now. If you fucking touch anything, though, it's just going to be a different story. And he just sat there with his hands in his lap as we flew into the hospital. Patient did fine. As soon as we landed and we got to the ER, his friend took off. <laughs> like a good friend would. Just runs right out to the middle of Albuquerque. But I thought that was a great save, though. We had another, we had another call. There was a um, a guy was uh, walked into an ER in a podunk little hospital out in one of the reservations in uh, outside of Albuquerque. Walked in with some tea. He was holding tea, and it just collapsed right there. So he had this weird epiglottis, uh, epiglottitis, where it's just his airway got all swollen, and they had a um, trachum right there in the ER department. But it was a small hospital, so they didn't have all of the supplies they really needed. So I think they had this huge, like, 5.0 ET tube. Like, that was it. So they made this huge incision, threw in, like, this ET tube through their uh, cricothyroid membrane, and then called us in to transport them to Albuquerque. So when we get there, we see this huge patient. He was tall. Like, he was, like, 6'3", six, 6'4". And um, with a ET tube going into his throat, and they taped up his mouth because the air was leaking out of his mouth because he wasn't a proper fit. Like, oh, this is going to be a fun ride. Here we go. We put him on our our Hamilton ventilator, and all the alarms are sounding because we have low pressure ventilation. And this is the cool thing about like flight nurses and flight medics. What a flight nurse lacks, a flight medic has, and what a flight medic lacks, a flight nurse has. And on that call, like I know my ventilator really well. When it comes to like, when it comes to scene calls, though, I rely heavily on my medics. But that was a great call because we got to play with all the different parameters of, of what a ventilator can or can't do. We ultimately just had to bag the patient though, because there was just such low alarm pressures. He was leaking out from the mouth. There was blood spurting out from the hole that they put in because the hole was massive. And so we had to bag him for about 40-minute helicopter ride. And that patient ended up living. But that was, a, that was another great call. That's one of the most terrifying things I've had to do in my career. Because if you think about 
paramedicine specifically. I mean, you learn a lot of these skills in the critical care medic courses, but paramedic, we don't. And I remember going on one, I think I've told this before, came in as an 18-year-old, difficulty breathing. There's kind of, you know, some some groans and some moans thinking, okay, it's going to be a hyperventilator. Well, this poor young man had, I think it was muscular dystrophy. And so he was now, fuck, 70 pounds, maybe. Pictures of him as a high school athlete, you know, when he was younger, this big strapping kid. And now he's just bones. It was so fucking sad. But he was on a vent in his room, but it wasn't a mobile vent. And so we had to transport and bag him the whole time. And you talk about stress when you're, I mean, obviously we know how to bag, but it's not a cardiac arrest where you're bagging, but they're not going to complain. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're basically dead. You know, this is a person who is completely AO times four. And you're like, wow, this this gentleman is going to die if I don't ventilate properly. And it's basic and it's EMT skill. But I remember thinking it's just such a a unique skill that your world does really well. But our world is only once in a while that we'll bag for a conscious patient. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that, that call really resonates with me. Firstly, the tragedy of that disease. But secondly, the responsibility to make sure that you bag perfectly for this conscious you know young man that's got respiratory distress but is still completely aware that's where you put your ego to the side and say how's my bagging you know i i bet you were it's like you let me know if this is too much because they 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 probably know better than you i in the icu when you're doing a spontaneous breathing trial when you have a patient that's been intubated for a while and you want to wake them up and you want to extubate them, first thing you do is you put them on a spontaneous breathing trial. You start off, shut off all the meds, shut off, shut off the fentanyl versed, wake them up, and then you put, typically they're on, let's say, pressure control or volume control, and you switch them on to just a pressure support. So they're actually doing all the breathing. They're sucking through a, an ET tube, and you're looking at their tidal volumes to see if, like, yeah, this patient's extubatable or not. So you get to have some interesting moments with an awake patient that has an ET tube harpooned deep into their, their lungs. And a lot of times they fail, meaning that they're just not ready. And we have to put them back onto the volume of pressure control and sedate them again. And there's a whole well, formula you follow. Um, but you get to have those interactions. And I remember uh, a lot of patients that have helped extubate, you're trying to coach them through it. And then other times they're just, they're just not ready to be extubated, but they're still awake. You're not going to snow them again because you snow a patient, although uh, it makes your shift easier as a nurse because they're not, they're, all you got to do is turn them every two hours. It's not the best for the patient. Um, so you kind of want to have a light sedation. You got plenty of interactions with people. And I would, believe it or not, like I would try to get patients up and moving called early mobility protocol. Where you get a patient up and moving that is still intubated and on like a volume control, a little bit of fentanyl, a little bit of versa, maybe a little bit of profile, but they are still with it. And it's so gratifying to be able to do that too. You're walking a patient on the hallway that's on life support. It's crazy. Those, those are some of my best memories working in the ICU, walking patients in the hallway when they're on life support. Can you imagine like that feeling that you, you have all this shit going on, but at least you got out of bed today. And you have all the reasons to stay in bed. You're on life support, but you got up and moving. Like that that sense of accomplishment those patients must feel and how that can carry them to the next day. And then the next day, and when they get extubated, when they get out of the hospital and they start their road to recovery, they did something so fucking hard 
where you actually walked while you're in life support, like that's just going to set them up for success. And all the research is out there that supports early mobility protocols too. Well, on that topic, because I wanted to hit that before we go to kind of your mental health journey and we'll unpack that too. But one of my friends, Steph Croston, came on a long time ago and she, right before we recorded, she she kind of brought up a, a perspective and she's a, a nurse and ICU nurse as well. And I'd never thought about this. And then as we progress forward and understand, you know, the, the power of sleep and some of these other things, it makes more and more sense. But when you think of the way hospitals are set up a lot of times there's you know blood pressure checks or vitals checks you know every x amount of minutes or hours you know you've got lights you've got artificial lights you've got noise in the hallway all these things and you realize wow you know the people that are sickest get the worst sleep when they're in icu and then even you know a lot of the other wards er's etc and so she talked about the term icu psychosis so talk to me about that and again king for a day how could we maybe restructure some? I get some of these patients just are going to have to have it all going on and they, they might be unconscious anyway. But in in the hospital setting, as sterile and clinical as it is, how can we maybe infuse some of these holistic elements to to allow the body to heal a little bit more on its own as well? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great topic. Uh, I know that as PICS, P-I-C-S, post-intensive care syndrome. So somebody comes into the hospital with let's just say pneumonia, and then they leave with a whole maraud of other problems like they, um, because they weren't getting the sleep. So now they're leaving with mental issues, physical issues, because they didn't get up and uh, up and out of bed, their sleep sucked. So something that we need to do as nurses is try to get them the best rest as possible. Try to minimize the alarms in the room, but there's so many fucking alarms in the room. And I think we're getting better at that. That's when litigation comes in. Is that you're afraid that if you miss something, if you miss something, an alarm's going off and you don't hear it, and that kind of falls on you. So being experienced and setting your alarm parameters to a comfortable level. For example, instead of 92%, maybe setting your alarms to 90% or whatever your hospital institution would allow. But that's that is something that if you are working in a hospital and you're on a what's called a shared governance committee, you on the unit can have some power of saying what are our alarms going to be set at. But alarm fatigue is huge because we're constantly waking up patients. The big, as far as getting them off of fentanyl and Versed, again, it's like me being on an Ambien for 10 years. If they're being knocked out and they're on life support, we want to make them comfortable. But doing these spontaneous breathing trials where we're lessening up sedation, seeing if they're ready to get off of life support, I think that's made a huge difference as far as trying to get people back, well, one off life support, but back into a sleeping routine. I think about the patients that aren't necessarily in the ICU, but the ones that are awake, like on a step-down unit, where we have to go in and check vitals every four hours. You know, we have to wake up. Are you in any pain? Check your vitals. You know, trying to get some sleep and you're waking them up while you're doing these interventions. So clustering your care, and these are things that nurses know, but really clustering your care to give your patient max amount of sleep. So you go in, let's say it's eight or nine o'clock at night. You're going to give them your eight o'clock, nine o'clock meds. You're going to do your assessment. You're going to do your vitals. And then hopefully the issue is that you have to go in another three or four hours and, and take a look at their vitals. And that might mean waking them up. I don't know how to do our job without necessarily waking them up. I mean, sometimes they're on telemetry and you don't need to, but they're all entangled into wires and everything. It'd be nice to have some type of 
I could be king for a day, really invest into some type of wireless technology where they're not hooked up to things, where they can actually move around in bed a little bit more. That'd be nice. It would be nice to darken the room as much as possible. There's so much LED light in there. It would be nice to maybe keep the room at under 70 degrees, 69 degrees is kind of ideal temperature. And then have some type of fans in there that that block out the sounds to the other rooms. Um, these are all things I do in my house. You know, have some type of of sound at night because a lot of the a lot of the patients they're going to hear the noise that's coming from the nurses station or they're going to hear what's going on next next door. So if they can have some type of fan in there that's blocking out the sound, I mean that kind of sounds like a good idea. It's tough though. A, a hospital is not a place to go to rest. That's why you want to get out as soon as possible. This is one of the big things that I think is really exciting about the infusion of telehealth and the 911 system. And it's still largely unheard of. And I'm trying to actually, I'll be completely honest, I'm trying to get a sponsor on from that realm so I can share it more on here as well. But you get some of these less acute calls that we run on that you ran on as an EMT you know, and you've got a child who's got a fever and they threw up once and the parents are freaking out thinking they're going to die of dehydration. Firstly, you know, you so they call 911, they say they, they realize, okay, it's not an acute call specifically. We have two options for you. We can send an ambulance or we can give you a video conference with an ER physician. Which one would you want? Well, 99 out of 100 are going to say, well, doctor, that sounds even better. They consult, they tell them, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, shed some of the clothes, we're going to give them Tylenol, whatever it is. You know, if, if X, Y, or Z happens, call us back, we'll send an ambulance. Now, not only is that child, that elderly, you know, man or woman, whatever it is, got to stay in their own bed, but now you haven't woken up an EMS crew and you freed up a bed in an ER for a truly emergent patient. So I love that whole system, but the underlying thing, and I saw this a lot my last place because we basically worked in Disney, is you'd have these parents and then they fucking so irresponsibly would say, do you want us to send you an alpha unit? They wouldn't say, do you want us to call 911? Because that's what they were doing. So they called it an alpha unit, another wanky Disney-fied version of, we're gonna wake up a crew of emergency firefighter paramedics and send them to your hotel room. That's what they needed to say. But anyway, so we get a lot of people that we just kind of appease and we'd, we'd walk them through everything, but they didn't need fucking 911. A lot of them wanted a Tylenol, whatever it was. So this little child that's in this very comfortable hotel room, if they need to go to hospital, they need to go to hospital. But more often than not, their parents needed some reassurance. They had, you know, you know, these days you can get meds and all kinds of stuff sent to to rooms with Uber meds or whatever the hell it is. So it was really just reassurance. We checked them out. Their temperature is this. If you, you know, you've got these massive blankets on them. If you take those off, turn the fan on, you know, and if there's any, if there's symptom A, B or C, just call us back. We'll take them. No problem at all. 99 times out of 100, we never hear from them again because that child got to sleep in a comfortable bed without a drunk on one side and a psych patient on the other. And so they got better. You know what I mean? So this is the the thing. The hospital absolutely has a place. We can take some of the, the creature comforts of home and try and use that principle in the hospital. But also, I think that's how we help the EMS and hospital com- communities too, is stop sending everyone to the ER because your medical director is like, oh, just send them. Cover your ass, like you said, litigation. Well, 
you have to have, be a big boy and a big girl in medicine. You got to make grown up decisions. And if someone doesn't need to go to an ER, they fucking don't need to go in ER. And you, you know, you're giving these people thousands of dollars of medical bills because you're too scared to say, you know what, this is the, you know, the flu that's going around. You've got all the symptoms. Call me back if you need to, but you do not need to go to the ER right now. You'll be do much better trying to sleep it off in your own home. I love that idea. By the time they got to my unit, though, and they're they're far past that. But anything that we can do out in the community to help prevent them from spending a night in the hospital and the family too. You know, if their if their kids coming into the hospital or their loved one, their wife, their husband, they're going to want to stay there. They're also not going to get sleep, and that becomes a huge stress on the family as well. We have caretaker distress. I'm staying in the hospital, even though they're not directly caring for the patient at that time. But when they get discharged and they're already setting themselves up because they've been sleeping in the hospital for the last day or two. I do think that hospitals are trying or becoming more aware of that. Other things are starting to become incorporated, whether if it's music therapy or aromatherapy, other things that's kind of sound woo-woo. But I saw a difference in, in my practice. You know, music is huge in my life. And I would try to have music on in the room. Um, during the daytime and at nighttime, you know, some patients, we had something called the care channel and we'd play like the soothing music to help patients. And I think sometimes it helped as well. But the big three things when it comes to sleep are sounds, temperature, and light. What we can do to minimize those three, whether if it's a patient or on our own lives, we're going to get better sleep, more profound sleep. If we can have the temperature cold in the room, under 70 degrees, I've read 65 to 69 degrees, it's pretty cold. Sounds, so for me, I need some type of sound. No sound, like I'm not gonna sleep. So some type of fan sound, some type of white noise. And third one, as, as dark as possible. And in the hospital, there is so much LED lights in there. And LED lights, they prevent the release of melatonin. So even you think of like oh, your TV screen, for example. Yeah, but even the lights on in your kitchen, all those LED lights, that's going to suppress the release of melatonin. So those LED lights that are in the hospital as well, that is preventing patients from sleeping sometimes. And give them ambient and trazodone, those are your usual PRN meds. But that's just knocking your patient out. That's not helping. Well, that is a beautiful spoon-fed segue to your journey then. So 10 years of Ambien, as you said, that's unconscious, that's not deep sleep. Walk me through your kind of mental health challenges, I mean, outside of just sleep, just, just overall, and then, you know, some of the tools and solutions that you found. I was working as a flight nurse and at my last job as a flight nurse. Over the last few years, I started realizing that the divorce rate was huge among my coworkers. And I was just recently married. So I, when you recently get married, divorce is something that you want to try to avoid. And the common denominator, I'm working with these amazing men and women that I just think are the, some of the best people I've ever met. I think someone who's worked in the fire department or nursing or flight nurse, you're just surrounded by incredible people. And to see that in their personal lives are affected by divorce, what's the common denominator? It's the job. So that was starting to weigh on me a little bit. So I was at a job where it was a toxic work environment. It was not, it was a place where you couldn't speak up, 
were being micromanaged. And there was a sense that if we were to ask for help, that we were, I know if you were to ask for help for something, you were going to get yelled at. That caused an additional stress on top of just having trouble sleeping. But now it's, what if I fuck up on a call? What if I'm, because you do mess up on a call sometimes. Or if you need to call for a medical direction and get help and you're going to get yelled at because you're calling medical direction because you need an extra set of uh, of eyes on a problem and you need someone who's got more knowledge than you and you're about to work outside your scope of practice and you need help and you're going to yell at. And so that just, it just causes uneasiness. So I felt like I was slipping. And if I was going to continue to work in that environment, I need to be a hundred percent all the time, every call. And I just felt like I was starting to slip a little bit. I decided that I needed to leave that environment and possibly the profession, but especially that work environment. So I left and went back to what I knew and what I knew at the time was the ICU. And that was during the, the Delta uh, variant of COVID. So I went back to the ICU and just burned myself out there. Still on Ambien at that point. I made a huge decision. For the last, at that point, it was, man, I want to say 12 or 14 years of my life were dedicated to critical emergency care medicine. That's That was my my passion. And my mental health was degrading. I was really moody around the house. I felt like I was an asshole. I was tired all the time. And I took a step back and said, I need to find a less stressful job. And luckily I found one because I was about to leave the nursing profession. And then this job at Intervention Radiology popped up. Luckily I got it. And that's where I'm still working now, two years later. As I started working in IR, I started unpacking all the shit that I've been harboring over the last few years, last few decades, whether if it's some of that childhood trauma, but I really wanted to get off Ambien and I just stopped taking it. I reached out to um, Robert Sweetman, who's been on your podcast. He is a Navy SEAL that started um, Sleep Genius uh, on his Instagram account, but uh, 62 Romeo. I reached out to him and I went through the, the six-week program. And I started learning shit that we all know, but it was put in a way that, was, that stuck with me. He started going over meditation techniques, breathing techniques. What are the three things you need to look for when you're going to sleep at nighttime, like I said, the temperature, the sounds, and and light. Really started diving into meditation and stopped taking Ambien. And my sleep, although it's better now, the program has significantly improved my sleep. There's still those nights where anxiety or something comes up. But now at least I have techniques to help. At least I now I have knowledge. Or before I didn't. One of the big things that's helped me out is a routine. Going to bed at the same time every night, waking up the same time, even on the weekdays or a weekend, sorry. So it's the weekend you want to sleep in, but getting up, if I'm, I usually get up around 4.45, try to get to jujitsu class at 6 a.m. before I go to work. Even if it's the weekend though, 4.45, you know, getting up at that time. Alcohol has been... You know, minimizing alcohol. I like drinking. I like tequila. I love the craftsmanship of a good bourbon, but it fucks with your sleep so much that I just, if I'm going to have it, it's going to be one and it's going to be during the daytime. <laughs> it's not going to be after 5 p.m. Uh, 
So if we're going to have happy hour, it's going to be really early. But I can't really have more than one or two. And if it's going to mess with my sleep, I can't. I am so protective of that now. I think you can relate. Having worked in a firehouse for as many years as you did, I think it was 14. And you know what it's like to run all night. And so now you're going to bed and you're trying to get the most out of that. So some of the other things, though, besides sleep, though, is just starting to work on my own mental health thing. Um, actually going to therapy, starting to. Writing's always been huge, though. Um, all the tragic calls that I've been through, some in Guatemala, actually a lot in Guatemala, white nurse, ICU. What I didn't know what I was doing was something called wet exposure therapy. It was a cool study that came out that compared wet so writing exposure therapy versus prolonged exposure therapy, like cognitive behavior therapy. And it's like 178 vets that went through this, this one program. So half were given the, the wet protocol and the other half were given the prolonged exposure therapy protocol. The, the vets that went through the, the rain exposure therapy, they had the same amount of success rate as those that went through the prolonged exposure therapy. But the cool thing was, is that it took half as long and the attrition rate was, or the dropout rate was less for those who went through the writing exposure therapy. All these years I was doing that. So all the shit that I went through, every time something tragic would happen, I would write that down. I'd put that in a journal. And some of it I would continue to write about and others I would just, it would just be in a journal somewhere. And man, I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but that made a huge difference, at least for me. And if you're not doing that, if you're a first responder or a nurse, it's free. You can do that anywhere at any time. And I'm not saying you should do that in lieu of going to a therapist. But something that's free, something that you can do anywhere, something that you can just put on some music and just start writing about something that is affecting you has had a huge impact in my life. I've, I've hurt myself a lot, but a lot of physical injuries from from sports and I've noticed or I realized that to overcome like a shoulder injury, I fucked up shoulder, but overcome a shoulder injury, it's not just about going to physical therapy. A lot of it is though. But for me, it's you know sometimes acupuncture, sometimes chiropractors, sometimes it's massage therapy. It's all these modalities of, of therapy. Writing is one of those modalities of therapy. If you want to make a good pizza, you need good ingredients. It's not just one ingredient. So sometimes when you're trying to recover from a traumatic incident maybe writing is the missing ingredient that nurses and first responders need so if you're out there and you're listening and you're going through some shit try writing on top of everything else you're already doing well i know i found it incredibly cathartic and i didn't journal at all so all that stuff was just held in there but i think what's been a great outlet for me are these conversations. So I tell people I have therapy three times a week, you know, each of these interviews that I do, because you do, you get to hear stories, you get to impart. Some definitely are a huge weight that you're adding. Sometimes you get to kind of, you know, uh, converse a little bit more and, and even offload some stuff, talk about some things that you haven't for a while. But the writing was very cathartic, the first book. And even with this one, I'm trying to infuse some of my stories in this fictional way. Um, and it's, bringing up more like i said the one the one i'm writing about where uh 
we had a very, very um, combative patient. I was like, fuck, I totally forgotten about that. So this is what's beautiful too. The more you write, the more these little doors open up. So your book is Ready Left, Ready Write. Talk to me about how those journals became a novel for you. When I left the profession, I've always wanted to give back to it because I worked with some giants in the field, some of the most amazing men and women, and I wanted to pay homage to them, and I didn't know how. So as I was continuing to journal and um, also just doing some short stories, uh, some some fictional short stories. I didn't send them off anywhere. I was just writing. I noticed that, you know what? I think it would make a pretty good novel if I were to just fictionalize everything and link these all together and I can add some themes into this. That would be really entertaining. And this is my way of paying homage to all these badass men and women who are still working this day, who are still like, I I feel this this enormous desire to help them somehow. And writing a novel that encapsulates their passion, their dedication, their sacrifice is my way of saying thank you. A portion of the proceeds of every book I sell will also go to three nonprofit organizations that are helping out nurses and first responders for the life of the book, because it's just that important to me. But that's how I basically did it. It was just looking at some these these uh journal entries and some of the fictional stories i was writing at the time and linking them together i one of my favorite movies is dumb and dumber and um i heard the farley brothers what they do is they just write really funny scenes and then they figure out how to link them together and so i i use that for this book saying okay i'm going to incorporate all these stories together where it flows in a particular way hopefully i did that and more importantly i hope it makes the first responders and nurses out there are proud because in a way this is their story. So talk to me about the three nonprofits. Let's give them some exposure. Yeah, would love to. So three nonprofits. First one, we already talked a little bit about 62 Romeo. Uh, Robert Sweetman, who is on your podcast. Uh, I see what episode. He was on 376. He runs that nonprofit and it's a six-week program for first responders and military and it goes over sleep environment behavior chemical physiology circadian rhythms and what you do is if you can go on their website and you sign up for the six-week program and it'll go through it uh it changed my life i now have a game plan i now know when i'm having my sleepless nights what's going on what i can do the book out there Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep, the six-week program goes into that. So if you're, you know, if you just want to jump on the jump on it right now, if you read that book, you'll get a lot of ideas that are in that program. But I love what 62 Romy is doing. Um, and then of all these nonprofits, if you can't afford it, if you reach out to them, they'll give you some type of scholarship. And uh, 62 Romeos is um, I want to be able to help them out. So if somebody's reaching out to them and they they can't afford it. Hopefully the, this book sells enough where we're able to help an individual go through that program. So that's one of the nonprofits. The other one is Overwatch Collective, Greg Rogan, uh, who's a uh, the first responder. He's a cop. He was in the military as well. I believe he was in Marines and he, he still serves. But Overwatch Collective, 
It's a nonprofit dedicated to founding uh, or providing therapy sessions to first responders. Right now, what they do is they vet out therapists in different states. They have 21 um, contracted therapists. So if you're a first responder, military, family member, it's really important that you go to a therapist that knows our language, that knows what we're dealing with. If you're telling some tragic story, you don't want your therapist to break down and cry because the story is so tragic. You want somebody that that knows what our, our, our life and our job is like. And so they do the groundwork for you. They'll be able to vet somebody out for you. The other cool really thing that they do is that if you are in financial need, um, again, with them, just uh, you can you can send uh, out an application um, and they will pay 100% of the first three sessions, 60% of the, uh, the next five sessions, and then 50% for the next five. And then there's a tier system after that. Awesome. Really cool stuff. They also have a an app, uh, the Overwatch Collective app that you can go. Uh, they have this incognito mode, which is really cool. So you can go onto this app and you can hook up with other first responders. And if you're going through some shit, you might be able to get some help just, just by the app itself, which is free. The third nonprofit is called Debrief in the Frontlines. And it is a nurse-led nonprofit that provides mental health uh, therapy to to nurses for a single incident or something that's called uh, CCT or cumulative care tra uh, taking trauma. Cumulative care taking trauma, it's that concept of a death by a thousand cuts. So as nurses, sometimes it's not just one big massive incident, it's all the little shit that we see. And this nonprofit, um, which is a nurse and actually a veteran founded, they'll provide these sessions where it'll help you start down-regulating your nervous system when it comes to these, these issues, whether through talking or breathing techniques. I, I absolutely love what they're doing. The, the providers that they have are not just nurses, but um, some of them have been through some pretty serious shit in their own personal lives. So I love what Casey and Tara and Michelle are doing in that nonprofit. So I'm fired up to be helping out these three nonprofits. Beautiful. Well, that being said, then, where can people find the book? Book right now is on Amazon. I went through Amazon KDP, um, and it's only there right now. You know, if the book gains popularity, maybe I'll look at some other places. But yeah, if you go to Amazon, put in ready left, ready right. Uh, if you go to my website, ddfinder.com, it'll give you a link to Amazon. But Amazon is where you can find it. Brilliant. Well, that's your book. First of the closing questions, is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. All right. All right. This is going to be an annoying answer because you're asking someone who reads a lot and an author, like, give me a list of some books. So I'm sorry to be that dude, but... No, give me a list, um, please. And not to kiss your ass, but your book is fantastic, by the way. One More Light, Chapter 3. Just chapter three alone. Chapter three, you talk about sleep deprivation. Everybody should fucking read that chapter. I think it's just so beautifully well written. About so I, when I worked for that uh, that flight company, one of the things that really pissed me off was that um, they the quote was, "If you're sleeping, you're stealing from the company," and how backwards thinking that is. And chapter three of your book is, I just wanted to give them that chapter. Please read this and tell me about your policy, and then get back to me. But I thought One More Light was absolutely fantastic. If you're looking for books that are like paramedic or flight nursing related, uh, Rescues from the Sky 
Uh, it's a good one. It's about a doctor that used to fly in the Coast Guard. Uh, blanket on the name now. Aid from above. Um, I think it's a good one too. A guy named Curtis Bell wrote about his stories as a as a flight nurse. As far as um, classic books go, kind of new classics. Obstacle is the way. Ryan Holiday. Everybody, I think that's been mentioned multiple times on this show. Uh, just fantastic. If you're looking for some more like fun reads. You know, something not too serious. You want to get away from medicine. History of the World in Six Classes by Tom St Standage. It breaks down or it goes into human civilization, how we developed as a society through the, the lens of six different, uh, six different drinks, coffee, tea, beer, wine, uh, liquor, I think Coca-Cola and water. Might have been seven, but uh, fan really fun book to read. Um, if you're looking for more of like something that's kind of out there, totally different. Uh, if you like a paranormal adventure mystery, like if you, if you want a murder mystery with, with werewolves, really fun read is shadow in the Valley by Gregory Haley. Actually, I know Greg, he was my editor. He wrote a book and he writes this book while I'm trying to edit our own book. And when this book comes out, my book is now delayed by a month because I'm reading his book, which is so fucking good. I was like, Greg, you suck, man. Like Shadow <laughs> on the Valley is such a fun read. Uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a few. And I, I, I think I mentioned before, Side of House Rules is one of my all-time favorites. I'm not so much into sci-fi, um, but probably my favorite sci-fi book is uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Ender's Game, and then the follow-up to that is Ender's Shadow. Those are just, yeah. Really fun, fast reads. And uh, based off of your recommendation, I just got Shogun in the mail. Oh, God, love that book. You're going to love it. It's, uh, yeah, you, mean you just get so immersed and it's such a beautiful insight into, I mean, firstly, Japanese culture, which I adore, but secondly, coming in, as you will see, the person is regarded lower than dirt and he works his way to to, to earn the respect and, you know, the the uh acceptance of the people and um yeah i don't know i don't, I don't want to ruin it for you it's a very big book so i'm not going to but beautiful beautiful writing yeah it's a thick book uh, that's going to take a while yeah but i'm looking forward to attacking that so what about films and documentaries any of those yeah um my wife's gonna laugh at me and make fun of me i can't stop watching the last dance on netflix like if, if we don't know what to watch, I'm like, let's just put on the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. It's just so inspirational. Like this is what it takes to be really good at what you're doing. Like we use it, you know, we, like I said, we, uh, my wife and I, we actually do jujitsu together and the 6am class is a bit of a sacrifice getting up and going to do that. But you put on the last dance. Yeah. We're going tomorrow morning. There's nothing to do with jujitsu, but it's just, it motivates you to be the best version of yourself. That's that's why I take out of it. Uh, Fourteen Peaks, kind of along the same line. Fourteen Peaks is about the Nepalese uh, climber that he climbs uh, fourteen of the highest peaks in record time. I loved. There's a line in it. It was like, when you think you're fucked, you're only forty percent fucked. So sometimes I say say that to myself during a hard workout. Oh, I think I'm fucked now. I'm only about forty percent fucked right now. <laughs> yeah, I had Nims on the show. Nims die, and uh, it was. I think it was right before the documentary came out. So it was beautiful. So I kind of got to hear some of that before. But uh, I mean, that 
his journey from you know trying to get into the Gurkhas to being the very first SBS, not SAS, which is crazy because that's the waterside to you know the just smashing these records. And now I think he's trying to, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's trying to do the same thing, but not with the oxygen, without the oxygen this time to actually truly challenge the way it was done prior to him. I, you know, before I came on the show, I did about a five minute row. I'm a concept two rower, just trying to push myself a little bit, thinking I'm a badass. And then I hear that, I'm like, man, I got a lot more training to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, that's a badass right there. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, speaking of badasses, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Greg Grogan from the Overwatch Collective. The work that he's doing with the Overwatch Collective, I think you're going to dig. His background is fascinating. Um, I got his contact. I'll just send that to you after the show. I reached out to him. I was like, hey, man, it's cool if I talk to you. He's like, yeah, absolutely. So he would love to come on the show as well. Um, Greg would be great. And there's a few other ones out there. Um, but I think I think Greg would be fantastic for the show. Brilliant. Let's make it happen then. All right. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? That's evolving. But some of the things I do, uh, jujitsu, I think is a great way of decompressing. You're not really thinking much when someone's trying to choke you. All the stuff that you got going on in your head and you're trying to get out of a triangle choke. You're thinking just about that triangle choke. And that is meditation. Uh, Gardening, believe it or not. Getting outside early in the morning, first light therapy is extremely important to help regulate your sleep patterns, but getting outside, getting your hands dirty, I think it I think it helps me a lot. Archery is another one too. When you're trying to put a stick in a little target downrange, again, my mind's not really thinking much about lifting weights. I've, I've been lifting weights since I was about 14, so that's still one of my go-tos to help decompress, walking outside in nature, of course, writing, music therapy as well. Music therapy for me is just blasting some heavy metal while I'm lifting weights. <laughs> Absolutely love doing that. Um, those are, I think, are, are pretty common among some of your guests. Uh, exercise, some type of meditation, getting outside, where there's truth, there's overlap, and you know, what works for the others has been working for me. Absolutely. That's why I asked that question. There's so many commonalities and it's usually it's the same thing. Time with family, nature, um, exercise, mindfulness, art. I mean, all these things. Writing obviously is a big one. So the very last question then. You said ddfinder.com was the website. Where can people find you on social media? The only place I'm right now is on Instagram. ddfinder, Delta Delta Finder on Instagram. Any other place, I really need to get my ass behind a computer and write the second novel. So I try to spend not too much time on on social media, but uh, I am on Instagram now. Beautiful. Well, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. You have such a unique journey with obviously several different hats along the way. And then, you know, the vulnerability of your own, you know, struggles and the tools that you use to navigate your way out. So I want to thank you so much. Firstly, for being the most prepared guest I've ever had. You had notes for everything. (laughs) And secondly, for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. James, thank you so much for having me on the show. The show has been a huge help for me in my time as a first responder. Uh, I was saying that there's times where 
um, if I can make it to the, through the shift, I'd get to listen to a guest on the way home and I've had some long drives home. So if they've come back on now, almost full circle, it's just been a huge honor for me. So thank you. And I look forward to hearing more episodes down the line. Great work, man. Strong work. <laughs>